Well, good morning, good morning. You are tuned in to the 3CR Gardening Show. Apologies for um, having to cut that last program, um, but I'm sure it'll, the podcast will be available. My name is A.B. Bishop, and I am standing in for Pam Vardy for the last week, who's um, probably enjoying herself still in Japan at the moment with all those autumn leaves. And uh, joining me in the studio this morning, I've got two very knowledgeable gentlemen. We've got uh, Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Tim Sanson from Australian Ecosystems. Good morning, guys. Morning, AB. Good morning. Enjoying the weather? It's a funny season for me. I always think, I think think it was Tim Entwistle that coined the phrase sprinter and sprummer. And yeah. Sort of the shoulder season. Oh, yes. I, I really like this time of the year because we get stormy rain, we get some heat, plant growth is really good. But then I'm always sneezing because of the Yorkshire fog. Oh, I have <laughs> not stopped sneezing. Well, I don't have that problem. Nye, nye, nye. <laughs> uh, I think it's quite handy to be a nurseryman and not suffer from hay fever or any of those sorts of nasty things. So, uh, and here's me skiting, and I'll probably come down with it now. Yeah, but anyhow, right. I wish um, you all the sneezing. Oh, thank the you, Tim. That's very sweet of you. Um, but, yeah, look, I was just saying to Tim before the program started, I'm going, way, we're having all this rain, and I'm thinking, oh, God, my garlic bed's all wet now. Uh, and it's all fallen over ready to dry and the ground's not dry. So there will always be something that you're not happy about with the weather because that's what... Well, anybody who works with plants, whether they be gardeners or farmers, will always find something to whinge about. But I have to say the rain is fantastic and I always believe that if I can get to Christmas without too much watering stress, and I mean for me, not the plants, um, then... It's really only 12 weeks and, and it's all over again. <laughs> but, but I've already had watering stress. Like the, last, the last week or so, um, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, I've been busy. I was away. It's been 30-odd uh, degrees. Yeah, well, it day. has. Yeah. The, the nursery that I run is, you know, we're having to water on a, on a full summer regime. Oh, sorry. I'm, now I'm on this microphone that works. Yeah, Hi, sorry, everyone. That, that microphone doesn't <laughs> work. You can't tell yet. I'm here. <laughs> yeah, we're on a full summer watering regime. Yeah. So it's, it, it feels like it's always this... this this cusp season where you can get the big storms. Now, this is the yeah. time of the year we get the big storms and the downfall, but we also get these crazy hot days, yeah. which great great growth rate. You know, this is yeah, the one particularly thing for the weeds. Yeah, <laughs> which is a curse and yeah, because my nursery is full of weedy things coming up everywhere, and I just can't get on top of them all. I mean, I'm I'm trying desperately, but I'm also trying to pot things at the same time because whilst it's mm. getting some rain, things well, if I can get things potted on, well, then they'll be really good for autumn sales. But while I'm potting on, I'm not weeding, yeah. and the weeds are getting bigger by the very minute. This is the nurseryman's dilemma, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to sell plants with lots of weeds in them and send yeah. them off, so somebody else will have to deal oh, with it. Oh, that's cheeky. Yeah, it is, yeah. but anyhow, what can you Maybe do? Maybe you could just relabel those weeds. It's, oh, all, yeah. about, it's all about well, perception. A lot of, anyway, a lot of it's it? Herb Robert that's yeah. coming up all over my nursery this year. I don't know how it got into my nursery in the first place, but I've got Herb Robert coming up all over the place. And I remember not long ago there was another nurseryman who was chasing some Herb Robert for some customers. Apparently it has herbal uses that, you know, it fixes everything from stones in horses who's to cancer or something. I don't quite know what they and use Robert. it for. Helps and, Robert. and it helps Robert. Uh, and I said, I've got plenty of it in the nursery. I'll pot you some. So I potted up some Herb Robert and I said, now, you will regret having this plant in your nursery even for five minutes. He went, oh, no, 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 it'll be fine. Well, he's got it coming up all over his nursery now. <laughs> but I did sell some Herb Robert. <laughs> well, maybe a special at Dixonia Rear Yeah, that's right. Herb uh, Robert coming yeah. up. Well, I do regularly get people say, what's that pretty little purpley thing that's coming up? And I go, oh. 
thing. Well, I often think I'm going to plant up all the weeds that are coming up around the place because the rabbits obviously don't like him. The wallaby doesn't like him. And I think, well, you know, if I put them in a pot, I bet they'll start going for them. Yeah, maybe I can change their taste somehow and get them to go for the weeds. Well, they can come in and have my herb robot, I tell you what. But anyhow. Oh, yeah, so what are you doing with your garlic? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm tempted to lift it and dry it unnaturally instead of leaving it in the ground because if we do keep getting these storms the ground's not going to dry up mm. and then I'll start getting mildew on the skins of the garlic and then and then I'll lose it and it's really good garlic this year I reckon it's the biggest garlic bulbs I've grown in years mm. this year they've been really really good and it's that variety the name of which I can't remember rouge something or another a French one that oh, I, yeah. I bought two or three years ago at the Tesla plant fair from uh, an organic garlic, garlic grower who was up there. And so I've been collecting my own bulbs since, and it's obviously settled down into my soil really well this year. Um, and I'm just so chuffed with the size of the, the bulbs. They're really big ones. And uh, um, We need to get Penny on the case. Yeah, so, yeah, well, I think I'll probably lift them when I get yeah. a chance this week I and dry them mine. in the shed. Uh, mine were starting to look a bit... They went over, they were going over. Yeah, well, mine have fallen down, but I scratched back and the bulbs are still really mm. sort of soft-looking. And so I think I'm just going to have to lift them. I Anyhow, think you have to. I think with mine, they were... They were just starting. They were doing exactly the same. I'm in quite a heavy clay soil in, in that part where I'm growing them, and they were just starting to get a bit of mildew and a, a yeah. bit of bit of rot into them. Yeah. Well, I could see it potentially going to happen, so I bit the bullet and yeah, lifted well, them, and um, they're drying well now. Well, I think I might do the same thing this week, and it will release the bed for another crop, mm. which is good too, because I'm running out of space in the veggie garden at the moment, as you do when the high spring comes on, and you're trying to cram as many things in as possible. Um, so I'm seriously running out of room. I picked the last of the broad beans this week. So I'll be able to pull the broad bean bed out and I'll pull the garlic bed out and I'll have two huge beds ready for sweet corn and sundry other things. So that'll be the plan, I think, for this week, all mm. things being equal. Well, last year I didn't get my garlic out and then, of course, all the individual cloves started shooting away. So, you know, just going against what everybody says, I pulled them all out and divided them while they were growing in the ground and, and replanted them. And oh, in the middle of summer. In the yeah. middle, yep. And yep. off they went again and yep. I've got great garlic waiting for me now. So, right. so there you yeah. go. Glad yeah. Penny's not here. I'm <laughs> sure she'll have a, a different view, but yeah, she'll give you a good telling Well, off. the thing is, sometimes <laughs> you just... But if it was successful. Absolutely. And, I, and you don't always get time to do things when, when it is the time to do things. Well, I always say to people, when people say, when do you prune it? I say, when you've got the time to prune it uh, is often the time yeah. you do these yeah. things. So, yeah, so sometimes in gardening, you've just got to bite the bullet and do something that goes against what all the pundits tell you will work, but you know you've got to do it anyway because you don't have a choice. Mm. It's like moving things out of season. People say, oh, you know, we're doing an extension. The builders are coming in next week. What do I do about this? And it's high summer. And you say, well, you're either going to have to pull it out and throw it away or if it's something precious enough, and I have to say if it's not that precious, I would pull it out and throw it away because I can't see the point in wasting mm. time on trying to yeah, re-establish. time and effort. It does. It takes a lot yeah. of time and effort to do, and especially if you can go out and buy a young one. Mm. Uh, they'll often settle in and grow better than one that's been dug up and moved out of season. But I dug up some standard roses in the middle of summer one year um, mainly because I was going to throw them away um, in the house we bought next door. Somebody who had previously had the house had planted a row of all different coloured roses <laughs> along the front of the house, and I thought, I can't live with this any longer. <laughs> so I, I went to hoik them out, and the tenant we had in the house at the time said, oh, my mum loves roses, can she have them? Which then promptly meant I had to actually dig them out and pot them. Carefully, yes. Uh, well, not that carefully. <laughs> I wasn't very careful at all. They got hoiked out of the ground. They got cut back within a, an inch of their lives. They had no soil on their roots at all. They were just bare roots and there wasn't much, well, there wasn't any fibre, really. I potted them up into some 12-inch buckets, stuck them behind the house in the shade, watered them in, and not one of them died. 
Yeah. Not one. It's a pretty robust thing. Yeah, it's a, yeah, could, that was height of summer. Height of summer. It yeah. was. I think it was mid mid to late January, mm. um, and within weeks they were shooting again, and they were for what they were, that, stunningly good plants. That worked for you because you understood to cut them right the way yeah. back, pot them and keep them watered. Yeah. And I think if, 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 you're in the high, if you're doing something out of season like that, you've got to understand how the plant's morphology oh, yeah. is going to work. If you just leave long, lanky Or go and plant it, it straight back in the garden yeah. somewhere else and then try and keep them damp in the ground, which mm. is not as easy to do as it can yeah. be in pots. Yeah, because potting media is going to be a lot more forgiving than yeah. open ground. Yeah. So you've, you've controlled the environment and success yeah. comes. Yeah, and as far as I know, those roses are... Gaudily flourishing somewhere else, even to this day. Mm. <laughs> giving, giving great joy. Yeah, oh, quite probably. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of these transplant stories. Now, the um, the route of the east-west link has been decided. <laughs> but, you know, all these people whose houses are being purchased, you know, you're already hearing stories about people who, oh, you know, my mother planted this such yeah. and such mm. a tree, and this plant reminds me of my grandmother. And Yes, yeah, so it's, it's all very sad, all it that is, stuff. It is really sad in a way, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, and, but and maybe for those guys, you know, there's, there's a bit of a lead time, you know, it, it might be better rather than to try and transplant the original plant when they get to get it, let's get some propagation yeah. happening now. Yeah, you propagate get better them plants, smaller Or check plants. that they're available commercially because mm. the, the issue with some plants, particularly sort of old cultivars, things like camellias and roses and things that sort of come and go out of popularity, you may not be able to replace that plant. So if you want that specific one, you might have to propagate it. But also you've got to be practical about these things and if you've got a garden full of plants and you know the whole lot's going to be bulldozed, then you've got to be a bit selective. And so find out whether the plant is still available out in the trade. I mean, if it's the same cultivar, it might not be grandma's plant, but it's genetically the same it's plant. Yeah. It's a clone. Yeah. It's yeah. a clone. Yeah. So, uh, so there's no reason why you can't go out and buy that particular rose again or whatever if it's available. But mm. otherwise, yes, start propagating. Mm. Um, uh, and then you've got those plants to move on with you to your new home, which will then make you feel more at home in your new home because you've got some familiar mm. things around you. Mm. So I think it's a good idea to be... Organise well in advance. It's slightly different if you suddenly decide you need to move because of your job and you've, you know... That's when you've got, got to a transplant and, yeah. and extreme action, extreme yeah. gardening. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting how we, we remain so attached to people through plants, isn't it? My um, mother-in-law passed away a few months ago and uh, we went round her garden and took a whole lot of cuttings and, you know, they're all shooting away merrily and, and she was a really fantastic gardener. So just having that link mm. with her and having those plants there is, is some sort of comfort. Because there's also in that, there's that, that notion that she selected them as good garden plants. So there's, there's this whole... Yeah. That, that's, actually, that's actually heirloom gardening in a way, because yeah. it's an inheritance yeah. of, of expertise from previous generations. The opposite generations. happens, of course, when... Because uh, I get people come in and they say, oh, I can't take that thing out, Auntie Maud gave it to me. And you say, well, Auntie Maud gave it to you, so does that necessarily mean she liked it? No, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Gave, gave it to you to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... You she know, was being selective in Auntie Maud's yeah, garden. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So, yeah, so uh, I have to say, at the risk of offending a few people, I'm quite ruthless in my garden. Uh, and even if it's a plant that has some sort of connection with me, if it's not performing well or it's not doing the job I want or it's just a crap plant, uh, as it turns out, because people will often give you things thinking it's quite nice, but then you grow it on and you think, well, it doesn't suit me at all. Mm. I don't think mm. this plant's very good at all. Or the garden. Or, or, or where you live. Yeah, yeah. You know, all those things come into it. And so, you know, I'll give most things a, a fair crack, um, but if they're not starting to perform and do something reasonable, I take them out. I mean, 
I and give them to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily, Tim. Uh, through the shredder or in the compost heap is as good a place for something that you don't think is a quality that's, that's plant. A, that's a form of recycling. It is recycling. I look at it that way because people go, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. And you say, well, you know, you're just turning it into a different form because um, nothing ever leaves my a place that's form. organic. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, if it's organic in one way or another, it goes back into my garden. I mean, nothing ever leaves. I call myself a net green waste importer. You're a sink. Yes, oh, I am. Beautiful. Yeah, so uh, everything stays on site that can be rotted down. So, uh, yeah, so if a plant's no longer performing, it ends up as mulch or kindling or firewood or, or whatever else, and then it goes back into the garden as ash or, you know, everything gets recycled mm. in the garden. Um, so, you know, because I started with yellow clay. Mm. on my block uh, 30-odd-something years ago. Uh, with yellow clay with a few pebbles in it and the topsoil was the grey smudge under the gum leaves. Mm. That was it. Mm. And now I can dig down a good foot to 18 inches in the old measurements uh, and find good soil all the way down now. Uh, and it's only taken 30-odd years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which you can do in a shorter time frame in a smaller area, yeah. obviously. And it, but it also depends on your natural type of soil. I'm, mm. I'm in a heavy clay just down the road. There's really... Um, really hydrophobic sand, oh, gorks, yes. but but all of those, both of those situations, and in your skeletal yeah. yellow band mm. of, of of soil, organic matter is the key to mm, getting it up. Absolutely. So yeah. to be a an organic matter sink as a garden, to be a collector of nutrients and organic material is. I guess our number one priority to get it's got to be. going. Mm. It's got to be. Mm. In fact, for the first, I was very systematic and I started right up in the back corner because if you're going to bring in wheelbarrows of things or even potentially truckloads of mulch, you don't want to have to go over an area you've done. So I started right up in the back corner and I double, tre- uh, I double dug, trenched, composted all the way through. So I dug a trench, started putting my stuff in it, started the next trench next to it and put the clay from the first trench and mixed it through the or in the second trench and mixed it through the first trench. By the time I had the first trench filled, the one right next door was ready to start moving and I just went across my whole property that way. And I did that for years. In fact, the most pleasant time in my gardening career was when I was trench composting off the front veranda because I could take the kitchen scraps out and just <laughs> heave them over the veranda into the trench. Um, and so everywhere on my property apart from the paths and driveways has been as close as possible to double dug all the way through with a crowbar and spade and what have you. And it took a crowbar because the clay was really Mm. hard. Mm. Uh, And, of course, I had the added advantage of spent potting mix. An awful lot of spent potting mix went home from the nursery. Every time I repotted things and cleaned the tops of the pots or if something had died, the spent potting mix went home. And because it's got sand and gravelly bits through it as well, that also helped to keep my clays open and, mm. and what have you. So yeah. I, I that think, gets the microbes yeah. and the soil fauna in and, there. And I really think that the spent potting mix was my magic ingredient to a large extent um, because I didn't bring any soil in because I always think that's a generally a counterproductive thing to do because it's never good. Uh, you buy the best quality soil from a soil yard and it turns into a pile of concrete in, the, yeah. in your front yard most of the time and you bring in 10 new weeds. Uh, so it was always just organic material. So I'd go and rake up people's lawns up on Mount Macedon and they'd get a clean lawn and I'd get van loads of leaves mm. uh, that I used to bring home and I did that for years on end. Now our trees are creating their own leaf mould to a large mm. extent. Um, and, you know, I'd be in my dinner suit and we'd be driving <laughs> along and there'd be cow manure in bags for sale on the side of the road. So you'd stop and, and grab some bags of cow manure and ended up with all down the front of your good suit uh, <coughs> and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I would bring it in all the time. And uh, now I've got good soil and, uh, and I keep mulching. 
So yeah. I don't dig anymore, except in the veggie garden where I've got to turn the bread over for the next crop. So I don't really dig anything in my garden anymore, but I just keep mulching. Mm. And I just do it all the time. You know, the, the tree surgeons will drop a truckload of tree shreddings or... Um, Actually, I'm about due to go out and buy something. I think I might get a, a couple of pallet loads of uh, pelletized chukpoo or something this year. I haven't had anything really strong go on the ground for a few years. So the whole garden might cop that, which the neighbours will love. Mm. <laughs> Only for a few days. Yeah, well, <laughs> there was the year of the, yeah, well, there was the year of the duck poo where I got onto, there was a local duck farm, and I got onto, I think it was three or four 10-metre truckloads of duck Ooh. poo, uh, and we had it dumped on, unfortunately, the nature strip of my next-door neighbour because my nature strip's all garden right to the road, but there's this sort of little parking spot on her nature strip, and so I can always put mulch and things there so without thinking I got the duck poo dumped on her nature strip <laughs> <laughs> and about four days later she, she said you're not doing that ever again <laughs> categorically so uh, it did pong I have to say every time you broke into the pile you know if oh. I'd had dentures I reckon I would have spat them out uh, it was well, really awful. What happened when it was all moved did you have a really good nature strip after that? Uh, well we still use it for putting mulch and, and park on really but it's um, not duck poo. No we're not allowed to have duck poo, which is a shame. Although I have to say, a certain person in my life was a little profligate with the duck poo and burnt the bejesus out of some plants because well, uh, yeah, it was so strong. But weeks later, you know, mm. the microbes and the worms and everything yeah. were having a ball. And yeah, I think we killed two rhododendrons with it, uh, but everything else flourished because it was going down about an inch and a half thick mm. over the whole garden because we had, you know, 30 so metres of the stuff. We well, can think there's a lot of nutrient release going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it did pong for a few days, but you're right, it disappears fairly quickly, the smell. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd love to be able to do it again, but, yeah. Might be a way of getting rid of the next-door neighbour, but, you know. <laughs> That's part of your plan. Uh, well, maybe she'll sell. <laughs> but, um, yes, it's, uh, it's great if you can throw something different into the mix every so often instead of just, you know using the obvious materials that are available to you. Yeah. Um, so I like to try and get something a little different every so often. Mm. So maybe I'll just have to settle for something like the pelletised chuk, chuk poo this time around because I can at least stockpile that somewhere else uh, and and I'll wait till she goes away for a day or two and then I'll do the beds on her side of the property. Mm. <laughs> well, I'm making chuk poo soup at the moment. Oh, are you? So, yeah, we, we, we've been collecting our chuk poo for how, a while now. and just. How chuk- many chukis have you got, Amy? We've got two. Two. And yeah. uh, two coming up to 12-year-old girls, yeah. oldest backyard chooks in Australia, apparently. Mm. So, well, confirmed. Um, confirmed by, <laughs> by a bird vet. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should Bossy read Guinness Dottie. Book of Records. Yeah, I know, I know. But, and... Um, one of them still laying. So yeah. It's, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, it's wow. pretty amazing. But, yeah, you know, I was chatting with, um, I don't know if you, either of you guys know uh, Simon Leake. He's uh, a, a um, soil scientist, and he created the uh, soils for, among heaps of other projects, Barangaroo Reserve in Sydney. So he actually went out and profiled the Sydney sandstone soil and then made, en- made enough soil um, for, for to plant, I think it was 75,000 plants in their yes. six he- hectare wow. site. So, and, you know, he's been doing this for 30 odd years. He's got a, a um, soil laboratory in Sydney. And, um, you know, I had the absolute privilege what of. What did you say his surname was? Leek, L E A K E. Well, it's, at least it's a horticultural name, I suppose. <laughs> I thought you said leech for a minute, and no, I thought that oh, would have been, been perfect, perfect for a soil oh, scientist. I should, yes. I should tell him to change his name, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, he was just saying, you know, it doesn't matter what your soil type, it's all about the compost. 
Mm. You know, sandy soil, clay soil, whatever it is, just get those microbes in. And, um, you know, and I've been doing a bit of reading and and something I didn't know is that if you use a green compost, so green-based, you know, either grass clippings that have been slightly decomposed Mm. or alfalfa or something like that, even, you know, green uh, garden waste um, from your kitchen, um, that... Uh, encourages the bacteria. So if you're wanting to have a really nice lawn or your veggie patch or annuals, those sorts of things. High feeders, heavy feeders. Heavy feeders. They prefer a bacterially dominated lawn, Mm. whereas your your trees and any of your woody plants prefer a fungal dominated soil. And um, so that's when you apply, you know, your woody mulches Mm. and even, you know, twigs and sticks and you just leave it there. Yeah, you get the mycelia coming through and um, that that is what supports, you know, I mean, you Mm. get both bacteria and fungi in in your soils, of course. But, yeah, if you're going for your annuals, use a a green-based compost. And if if you're going for, you know, woody shrubs and whatever, it's... um, So how do you make your your chook soup? Chook poo soup? Chuck poo soup, all like, yeah, not chuck soup. Not chuck soup. Oh, not Donny and Sonny. Twelve years, you're going to make soup. Yeah, they'd only make stock at their Come age, on, I think. <laughs> um, I've just put poo into a plastic bucket and filled it up with water. And so just let it, let yeah, it stew just for let a bit. Yeah, just let it stew, and um, I'll be straining it and, you know, as always, make it the colour of wheat tea, which seems to be a, a, yeah. a good recipe, and then, yeah, put it on everything. It's the same way you do a comfrey tea or any of those. Yeah, of, you know, yeah, those, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Get a nice stench going. Yeah. Yeah, although, I mean, if you chuck in a, um, an aquarium bubbler, you know, keep it aerated. Because yeah, okay. um, it's often get, the anaerobic that creates that, that's that, right. that stench. Yeah, yeah. but if you, if you want a really, you know, fresh, good-smelling compo- uh, compost tea that's um, really high in bacteria and protozoa and stuff, you chuck in a bubbler. Yeah, and yeah. You, you keep it aerated rather than, so you keep it, you know, aerobic rather than anaerobic. Yep. And you can, you can create a compost tea really quickly yeah, doing okay. that. Yeah. I suppose you could do the same thing with the flow forms, the, the biodynamic flow forms. Absolutely, yeah, around, yeah. That's just constantly moving yeah. and aerating the water. Yeah, although mm. I think, you know, just having a big bucket with, a, with an aerator is a bit easier for a lot of people. Yep. But, yeah, you can create this incredible compost soup. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, we'd we better should, do some announcements. We'd, better, better do some announcements. <laughs> we'd, we'd got well on without yeah. doing any, yeah. isn't that all naughty right. of us? Stephen, you first. All right. Um, all right, there's two gardens open today um, for the Open Gardens Victoria scheme, and they're both around Mount Eliza. Um, and one's called Summer's Lease, and the other is Nithsdale. Um, they're both quite different styles of garden. Uh, uh, Nithsdale is an English style garden. Um, Bordered by an 80-year-old hedge uh, set on an acre. Um, and Summerlees is an elegant and timeless garden designed by Andrew Stark uh, with a relaxed formal style. Uh, both gardens are open today. Um, the addresses are for Summerslees, uh, 40 to 42 uh, Rosadale, R-O. Double S E R D A L E Crescent Mount Eliza and Nithsdale is 34 Rannick Avenue Mount Eliza and uh, each garden is $8, uh, students 5, children under 18 free. So that's today if you want to get out and about and have a look at some gardens. Um, and there's also a Philip Withers Landscape Design Garden open um, on uh, today. Yes, 26th of November. Uh, It's in in the Collingwood Arts Precinct, uh, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, between Wellington and Smith Street. Uh, It's wheelchair, uh, family and pet friendly. Um, 
So if you wanted to go along there, I'm trying to see where prices and things are, and I can't see them. Um, doesn't say. No, I can't find anything that has anything to do with the prices on it. But anyhow, um, it sounds like a great fun thing to do, and I'm sure it won't cost you an arm and a leg if you show up uh, and go and have a look at that uh, Philip Withers landscape design garden. So there yeah. you go. Uh, <clears throat> coming up in the middle of this week, actually it's on Thursday the 30th of November, uh, Simon Rickard, one of the regulars on the gardening show here, is doing the final in his um, workshop series, this is workshop number three, uh, of Birds, Bees and Flowers, The Sex Life of, life of Plants. Uh, so many of you will know who Simon is. If you love gardens and plants, don't miss this exclusive midweek workshop with Simon. Uh, it's being held at Casa Allegra, uh, which is just on the outskirts of Trentham. Uh, all workshops include morning tea, lunch with a glass of wine and afternoon tea. Uh, the, the afternoon tea or seasonal lunch is provided by Emma James, formerly of Star Anise in Kyneton. Uh So these uh, workshops uh, Simon's been running a series of, and this is the last one, so get in for spring. They are $160 per head, uh, and you can book through www.3w.com.au forward slash Rickard Garden Series. Uh, or you can call, for general inqu inquiries, you call Charmaine Smith on 0425 753 235. But I think if you go to ticketbow.com.au Rickard Garden Series, you will find all the information you need there for Simon's Spring Series. We also have, um, excitingly, next, next week on the program, the 3CR Gardening Show, uh, is coinciding with International Day of People with Disability, uh, running a, a broadcast special uh, focusing on the benefits of gardening and horticultural activities for people with disabilities. Uh, so next week, this time, this time uh, guests will include Stephen Wells, a horticultural therapist, a nurse uh, and, and garden grounds project officer with Austin Health. Also, we'll have Basil Natoli in the studio. He's a garden teacher working with children with disabilities at uh, three educational de education department-run schools in Melbourne. Uh, he's been part of the gardening scene for horticultural Ooh, therapy yes. for many years. I've known Basil for a long time. He's worked with cultivating communities. He's worked with the Victorian School Garden Awards. Uh, and thirdly, we've got Josh Fergus, a horticultural consultant uh, from Humanscapes. Uh, uh, Kevin Hines Grow, a small team of, of special, special, excuse me, a small team specialising in creating therapeutic environments and assisting clients with the design and development of horticultural-based therapy programs. So a whole special on the benefits of gardening for people with disabilities on next week's Garden Show on 3CR. Ah, and uh, Liz has just let us know that the Phil Withers um, Garden as part of the, um, the one that you were yeah. looking at, Stephen, is actually free. Oh, it's free. Oh, that's why I couldn't find a price, price on yeah. it. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't be a better price. Yep, beautiful. <laughs> All right, so Saturday the 2nd and Sunday the 3rd of December, so next weekend, the Geelong School of Botanical Art and Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens has got their Christmas fair from 10am to 4pm at the Geelong Botanic Garden Meeting Room, which is at the back of the um, Botanic Gardens. A Christmas fair showcasing artwork and merchandise from the Geelong School of Botanical Art and Friends of Ge Geelong Botanic Gardens. Artwork, prints, books, cards, general merchandise and flowering pelagoniums for sale. And Wednesday the 6th, uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens have got their <coughs> plant sale from 12 till 3. 
um, at the uh, Melbourne Uni Burnley campus outside the Burnley Nursery, uh, parking on Yarra Boulevard. Um, and you can go to their website for the plant list, and that's the w's.f for friends, obg.org.au. And um, it's cash payments only with the funds raised going to the Burnley Gardens projects. And uh, a 3CR community announcement that um, 3CR have got a wine fundraiser going on at the moment. Um, lots of bottles to sell um, to raise money <coughs> for the station. Um, wine is available for collection from the 3CR office and can be ordered online. So you can go to 3CR, so, so that's the uh, number 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or you can phone the station on 94198377. So if you want to get some wine for your Christmas functions, uh, I think um, now's the time to do it. So you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio is Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Tim Sanson from Australian Ecosystems. It's um, definitely time to invite people to uh, ring in if they've got any questions or comments and or want to um, you know have a challenge about who's had the most rain over the next few days, <laughs> over the last few days. Yeah, it'll be well, variable out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, summer storms are like that, aren't yeah. you? you know, yep. I, we did have one the other day and... Up at work, where my nursery is, which is five minutes by car away from home, we had heavyish rain. At home, we had 25 mils in about yeah, 10 okay. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so within five minutes drive, there was a complete difference in, in the rainfall that we got. So, yeah. yes, and even then, I'm not sure that we actually measured it all because there was a broccoli leaf that might have been slightly hanging over the <laughs> rain, uh, rain gauge. Yes. <laughs> Well, I, should give that, I should yeah. absolutely give that number yeah. if people want to call in, uh, 94190155. But, uh, yeah, so we went out on, uh, on Friday and um, when we came back we'd had like 23 mils and it was very obvious that we'd had 23 mils. There was kind of ri- river banks disappearing <laughs> down the bloody paths. And it was just, <laughs> yes. It's quite incredible, isn't it? I always get a little bit nervous when we're at home and it's such heavy rain and you're running around and you're digging trenches I mean, because we're on a hill and every, you know we've got a, we've got a few spoon drains going on there but there's always water getting in somewhere so I was kind of grateful in a sense but um, I've um, moved out into my tent now that's my summer house in the garden and unfortunately I left the um, back flap of the tent open so I got back and the entire um, contents of the tent were completely and utterly soaked so oh there you go but that only took about 20 seconds to dry the yeah, next day it was so it was so yeah, yeah, yeah it was so yeah. sunny and warm yeah, I managed to leave the driver's side window of the van open the other day when we had one of those things yeah, because so you much. get out of the car and it was hot yeah and, and so I just leave yeah. Yeah. yeah, you don't think about it, do you? Yeah, and yeah. then I was working and it was raining and I'm thinking, oh, blast, I'm trying to get this stuff done and didn't even dawn on me that the window of the van was open and I got to the van and the seat was all soggy wet and it's just disgusting having to climb in and drive it. You've got your own little hothouse. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yes. Yes, it was quite humid uh, and I now know probably what incontinence is going to feel like. <laughs> So, was this in your dinner suit again? No, no, not in the dinner suit. It was just in my work clothes, fortunately. But uh, there's something awful about sitting on a soggy seat. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. But anyhow, you never learn. Oh, the trials and tribulations <laughs> of spring and summer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and apparently it's going to be a, uh, is it a La Nina? The Nina yeah, system, of yeah. A wet summer. Wet yes. and cool. Well, I, I, which has been bizarre, given that we've just had this record 
November. This, I think this is the hottest yes, it was. November yeah, on, yeah, yeah. since records have been kept yeah. in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, which climate change? What climate change? Who, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, it, and it's it's interesting to be able to adapt to that in the garden sense because we went because remember Cup Week, which was only what two weeks ago. Mm. It was 18, 19 degrees, mm, mm. Uh, and, and I was quite comfortable. It's quite you know it's, I feel more calm when it's when it's cooler. Yeah, and then this hot weather comes on. And the garden leaps, the weeds leap, the nursery needs watering, and it's suddenly... Tim doesn't we're... leap. No, I don't. I'm like, <laughs> Tim wilts. No, yeah. I wilt. I, my kids often say this to me, that I'm, I'm like a plant. I, when the weather's good for plants, humid and a bit cool, I'm yeah. happier. Yeah. When it gets yeah. hot, I get a bit stressed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, I'm well. with you on that as well. I do the same thing. When it gets hot and dry and stuff, I get stressed. Um, and it's got nothing to do with bushfire season or anything else. It's just hot and horrible. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you, and don't, you don't work as much? Like, no, you I can't, can't get as much as done. Hard. No, um, I don't get yeah. stuff done. And put a north wind in the mix and oh, it's even worse. Yeah, and you see plants, particularly in spring where they're still soft and sappy, mm. and, you know, by midway through the day they're all wilting. Yeah. And, and, and that's and been a phenomenon over the last week or so because yeah. it was so cool yeah. and soft. Yeah, my acanthus yeah. went thump yeah. and fell over because it was so big and lush. And we got one warm day and the sun got onto it and the acanthus just... Collapsed. I think it will have stood up again by now. I don't think it got to the point. But it'll have those wounds, you know, it'll have a marginal burn. Yeah, or or the slightly crooked stem and things. It won't look as gorgeous as it did do, but um, at least it's one of those plants that will always bounce back. Now, what I want to know is why have you got a broccoli leaf over your rain gauge? You've either got a really, really tall broccoli plant, or you've got your rain gauge in the wrong spot. Now, I've got a low rain gauge because I, I stuck it on a, a, a lovely piece of old recycled fence post, which is slowly getting shorter as it rots off at the bottom. So the, the rain gauge is going further into the ground. to lift the rain gauge. Yeah, I think I need to get a new post to put the... Actually, I need a new rain gauge anyway. Mine's got a crack up at the top of it where I've whacked it. So your 25 it, so mil is actually more like, like 50 mil. Well, it, could, it could be, Tim. It could be, but... Um, I'm not one of those that's sort of really pedantic about how much I get. You're not I writing mean, it down every morning uh, and then doing a chart. I used to do that, yeah. um, but uh, I don't know, life's too short. Um, you know, if I've had heavy rain, I like to know I've had heavy rain. And apart from that, it doesn't really work. I, I had a friend whose his, um, rain gauge was his wheelbarrow. Yeah. Basically just leave oh, the wheelbarrow yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, look, we've had, you know, three inches in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's almost enough for me to work things out. Um, I always like it when my tanks overflow and flow into the ponds and the ponds overflow and you think, well, I've had good rain. Yeah, that's good rain. Yeah, that's good rain. The tanks have overflowed. They filled up the ponds. The ponds have overflowed. They're running down the driveway. That's good. You've got that wonderful water wealth sense. Yeah. All my capacity is full. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. But, I mean, your garden would be hard to have a rain gauge in the right spot anyway. Oh, there's yeah. so many trees it everywhere. Is. And the veggie yeah. garden is probably the only place I can sit one up where there's no real overhang. Um, uh, but as I say, if I grow a decent-sized broccoli at the moment, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I think... I think when you when you get your new rain gauge, because yeah, I'm going to buy a new, buy one, a new one. There'll yeah. be an instruction on it that says something like you'll have six meters oh, clear totally. in every oh, direction. It's impossible. I'd have to have a barren landscape yeah, to bother yeah. doing that. Yeah. And then you wouldn't need to know how much rain you're getting. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> you've just got wouldn't have any plants. Yeah, yeah, you know. So yeah, so I, there's no way I can find six meters of clear ground to put a rain gauge in. But the veggie garden's generally the best spot to put it because mm. most of the time it doesn't get covered by broccoli leaves. And if I do put a higher post in next time around. Uh, Actually, I think, I've got an, I think I've got one out in the back garden that I could probably use that should last me a few years. So I, I might ch- get a new rain gauge, set it all up, and then I'll be ready to go, and then it won't rain. Yeah. yeah. Don't do that, actually, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, then it yeah. won't get rain. Yeah, exactly. Although they are forecasting, the, as AB was I can saying, change all that, though. Cool, yeah, yeah, cool yeah, and wet. I can change it all, though. I'll have a picnic. 
<laughs> yes. Get a rug out. Yeah, oh, yeah. Boom. Yeah, that's right. Store. Yeah. So I could do that as well. All right. Enough of this frivolity and nonsense. Oh, Shouldn't yes. we be doing let's, something let's horticulturally oh, inclined? I want to talk to Tim about um, your work at Australian Ecosystems. You know, any projects going yeah, on? Yeah, we've um, we've got big projects all over Melbourne. So a bit of a background for listeners is what what Australian Ecosystems does. We're a landscape company that started 20-odd years ago, originally called Wetland Ecosystems, so centred around constructed wetlands in the Greater Melbourne area, originally as part of the Melbourne waters uh, cleaning up the the nitrogen input into the bay. This was on a a strategy that was 20-odd years ago. Uh, So we still do a lot of um, wetland plant uh, propagation and installation. We have a team that... So my, my nursery team, we run, the, we run the growing of the plants. We have a construction team that plant the plants into the landscape and we have a maintenance team that follow that up. Uh, so we've, business has evolved to be just, just in from, we've come out of the wetland. We still do the wetland, but we now do the, the batter that goes up onto mm-hmm. the sides of the wetlands and the constructed landscape around that. So including projects that, are, that have hard landscaping elements, playground equipment, um, paths, park benches, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so recently, Australian Ecosystems was um, lucky enough, or skilled enough, I guess, to win the Landscape of the Year with, Vic- with um, Landscape Victoria, mm-hmm. which was for a project down in Geelong at Armstrong Creek, at Warralilly, which in which we put about a million plants over a, a series of um, uh, projects. Uh, and that was... Uh, so a, a, in amongst an urban development, a suburban urban mm-hmm. development, you've got a creek line that runs through that, uh, so it's creating a, a wetland space, which is part of that, that pulse of you know, the sort of storms we're talking about that we get this time of the mm-hmm. year. You get a big flush of water mm-hmm. running through a system. This is an interrupter to that. It's a, it's a, it slows the water down. A lot of biofilm is created on all the wetland plants. So when you think of a, the, the reedy, rushy plants that, that live in the water in a, in a wetland system, if, you, if you're ever you know, wandering around in that environment, which I probably wouldn't recommend, but if you ever are <laughs> with your waders on, You'll find a sort of a slimy consistency that sits on the leaves. This is a biofilm that is a lot of bacteria and uh, material that that actually sucks nitrogen out of the out of the water and takes and heavy metals will go down into the root system. So this is what these these wetland systems are designed to do. Um, and then you've got so in conjunction with that water treatment facility, you've also got these parkland spaces which are becoming recreational spaces. Uh, and Australian ecosystems have got. We have jobs, a lot of jobs that we do are sort of around the, the growth belts in the north and west of Melbourne, um, but also quite a lot of um, supply of wetland plants for Melbourne water in wetland remediation throughout the Melbourne, greater Melbourne area. So big jobs and small jobs? Big jobs and small jobs, yep. mostly, mostly big jobs yep. where we're doing, um, you know, we'll be supplying 20,000, 30,000 plants for a given project, mostly yep. larger projects. We do have a project on at the moment which is we're just getting underway in Mullum Creek which is a, a suburban development, an urban development, which is a really um, eco-designed, eco-sensitive um, development. Uh, so we'll be putting in the wetland and, and communal space through there. But there's also potential for us to work with the landholders there mm-hmm. who, who, are, who are building houses, and those houses will be eco-sensitive design. And then we can work into the domestic landscape. So we can, do, we can actually get to the point where we're doing Indigenous gardens, which are habitat gardens, and then partnering up with our sister business, Biofilter, where we're doing a lot of work around urban food production. So we've got these food cubes, which are advanced wicking beds. Uh, so you can have the habitat garden, you can have the food production garden, 
in a in a uh, fully integrated design system, which mm. which is the next chapter I think of where Australian Australian ecosystems goes. We'll continue doing the the large landscapes as well as starting to get into these more bespoke. Um, yeah. domestic scale. Yeah, and I think those um, large developments like the housing developments, probably some of which that you're working on, um, they have to buy law now, don't they put they in a, a filtering system? Yeah. But what, what I find really funny is now that the developers are forced to do it, it's now their, the selling point, you know, it's yeah. such and such a lake, so yeah. we'll come to the, you know, waterways, the waterways or, yeah. or whatever, and, but, and people love it. They do, and to see, I mean, that, there's one called Waterways, which I think, um, AB, you did some work on with the ABC, um, we put that in about 15 years ago. Um, this is down southeast Melbourne on the Morty Alec Creek. And it is, it's amazing to visit that place and see all the residents from this, which is a highly suburban area, mm. uh, wandering through what is a spectacular ecosystem. Mm. Like this is an eco- constructed out of basically a swamp. Mm. Well, a swamp's a bit pejorative, but a, a, an area that was disused water, mm. waterland. It mm. now has a diversity of bird life. It has, a, you know, it has massive filtration capacity, uh, but it's a recreational space mm, that people mm, really thrive on mm. and really enjoy. They use it actively every day. And that's, that's a, a win-win for all, I think. And even though it's legislated now that they have to be in this part of these developments, it has the water treatment, it has the recreational capacity, uh, and it's, and it's uh, in, including, uh, improving biodiversity throughout the Mel- greater Melbourne area. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. Yeah, we used to drain our swamps. Now we're putting them all back again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you think about if I often drive across the top of Western Port, you know, when I'm heading to Gippsland, and that whole Cooey Rup area, which is prime uh, asparagus country these days, but that would have been an amazing wetland before they drained that. The mm. mangroves would have gone right the way up to the hills. Mm. You would have had all sorts of diversity, bird life. When I've, I've heard people say that it was a wetland to rival Kakadu. Mm. I had a friend who used to go eeling there. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, it was... Um, Which was quite a commercial thing for our, our first inhabitants in Australia. Yep. You know, eel traps and eel... The, the whole eel economy, mm. I think, was mm. massive mm. Uh, in Indigenous commerce, really. Yeah, so do you do the uh, like water testing before and after, you know, test the water in creeks or, or your um, developments, you know, before the plants go in and then, you know, two years later? We don't do the testing as such. So that's Melbourne Water do all the governance mm-hmm. around and the inspection. Uh, so there'll be, there are quite specific Melbourne Water guidelines around what plants to use in, in, uh, in fact, how the whole system is now designed. That's just been updated this year. So you'll have, there's, there's actually four sections of, a, of a, a transect running into the wetland. You'll have what they call the ephemeral batter, which is the sort of dry bit where it gets on a big pulse, it'll get wet. Yep. Then you have the shallow marsh, which is up to 350 mil deep, the deep marsh, which is a bit deeper, and then the submerged marsh. And so Melbourne Water have very, uh, very prescriptive um, plant lists for what works in each of those areas and densities and plant formats. Uh, and then... Once the, the wetlands are planted, according to those, then Melbourne Water will come through and do the audit on the densities. And there are, I think, separate programs where they're doing water testing uh, for whether it be nutrient load or whether it be heavy metals. You know, in fact, in some, of, some of the listeners may have seen the story in the Melbourne Age last Monday, which was talking, it was sort of a big headline piece around the toxicity in you know, Melbourne's toxic mm-hmm. wetlands. And this was based on a, it wasn't a Melbourne Water study, but they have done some and responded to it, um, which was indicating a lot of these constructed wetlands are becoming a sink for uh, heavy metals, which is basically what's coming out of Mm. the the suburban environment, Mm. really. So it's not, the wetlands aren't generating it, but they are trapping it. Mm. And there was some concern around water quality, you know, 
Melbourne water pretty clearly specified don't eat fish from some of these wetlands, don't swim in these wetlands and don't drink the water, which makes sense when you think of a, a wetland in an urban mm, context. Mm. It's not pristine water. I, know mm. I, I go bushwalking quite a lot. I'll, I'll drink water from up in the high country, but I'm mm. not going to drink water out of a wetland in Melbourne. <laughs> no <laughs> way. <laughs> so that's fairly, fairly standard. Uh, but the controversy was really around what the, the load of heavy metals that's, that's developing in these, in these wetlands. Mm. But really that's a function of them doing what they're meant to do. Yeah, exactly. They're, and they're meant to suck that in so that's not being discharged further down the line. You don't want those heavy metals being discharged. I guess discharged the next level is for us to stop creating so many heavy yeah. metals and that's, as well. That's right, that's right. You yeah. know, so that's where we need to be going uh, at the, yeah. the next point. So, that, so what the wetlands are doing in an urban context is they're, they're a sink, like your mm. garden is, Stephen, for, for, not, yeah. for nitrogen and the compost and, and um, living material. The wetlands are a sink for problematic Mm. So they're taking nitrogen out of the system so you don't get eutrophication of the bay. They're taking heavy metals out of the system and dropping them into the sediment. Now, they're locking them up into the sediment, mm. so they're not actually motile. So when you mm. get a pulse of water running through, it rises and falls in the system. It doesn't shoot straight through. Mm. So they're not actually motile and moving down. No, no um, so it locks them into place. It so locks them not, in. Yeah. And, and that, that does create a down the track. There's going to need to be some extraction of that, which would be get into the wet, get constructed wetland. It's a constructed wetland pull that out mechanically with some digging equipment and go out and put it into landfill or some toxic confinement. Yeah. But at least that's actually controlling it and doing something with it rather than letting it run free onto the bay mm. or onto the beaches where we're playing, you know, sandcastles and things. You don't want cadmium and mercury and those things there. Strangely enough. Strangely <laughs> enough. We can have children <laughs> glow in the dark. <laughs> You've got to find them. <laughs> so with the, um, with the plants, is it a similar sort of suite for the ephemeral plants or is it like completely different groups the, of plants? So the ephemeral, so if I can just sort of create a picture that, the ephemeral batter is where the plants are in the dry zone, mm-hmm. which will only get flooded at a, at a big storm event. Uh, and typically there'll be things like poa, uh, the poa labs, the lamandras, mm-hmm. you'll get some carex species in there, so some of the sedges. Uh, and they're, they're so kind of dry land species that'll take a pulse. And then as you go into the areas which are, have, <coughs> excuse me, have a bit more water more permanently, then you're into your club rushes, some of the things called baumures. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, you get Chenoplectus, some of these, which, and I come from a background originally in, in natural resource management, but I've been in ornamental horticulture for years, so all these things look like just green rushes. <laughs> but they are actually, there's subtle differences, or actually quite significant differences when you look at them, um, and they have different functions at different depths. So you go then through, the, there's, and there's some quite, a, quite um, rapidly growing species, like the Baumiers or the Chenoplectus, and there's a thing called a Cladium, which is a... Uh, which is a tall, sedgy-looking plant that can grow up to two metres plus. Then one single plant can establish, you know, can, can do a square metre in, in a season. Mm. Uh, and, and so you can get, when you get the, the right selection of plants for these, in these benches and shelves in the, in, the, in the wetland system, you can get close out in that system within 12 to 18 months. And then you get that functionality of the, of the interruption of the water and the biofilm in operation. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's a really good environment, obviously, for your, um, any of your water species, animals and, and birds and insects and whatnot. But do you also plant, you know, shrubs and things on, on the borders to allow for that extra yeah. habitat? Yeah, so I was just recently on Friday, we was at, um, there's a wetland in Ascot, Escott Vale called Enclave Wetland, which is mm-hmm. part of a, one of the a development for a, um, one of the big builders in Melbourne. We planted that about 18 months ago. Mm. And in that wetland, you've got, yes, you've got the, the wet zone, 
and you've got all the plants I was just talking about. Then you've got, as you go up the hill, you've got some leptospermums, you've got, you've got more twiggy plants, yep. you've got some cassinias, you've got, and then even into the eukes. So even in quite a small space, you've got that transect running right up into the dry land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, definitely getting habitat all yep. the way through. That We saw a, I think it was, I'm not sure because it was in the distance, we saw it was either a great or intermediate heron the other day in the centre of Melbourne, yep. right near Flemington, yep. Brilliant. which wouldn't be there if it wasn't for a wetland like this. Yeah, well, yeah. I hope the, um, the developers are also considering that as well from mm. that, um, the habitat of the, of the um, land-based birds, I mm. suppose. Look, we should get to our callers now. Um, we're going to go to Daylene and Druin. Hello, Daylene. Good morning. You there, Daylene? We've got Hello. a problem. Nope. Daylene's not there. She wanted to um, chat about a lime tree, so we'll see if we can get her back. All right. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, you have brought in a forest. Yeah, as, um, you, as is let, my want. Let's, let's do it. All right, let's do a few things. We'll start with one of the tallest plants. Um, this is a, a South African shrub uh, called Greya Sutherlandii. Uh, there's only three species of Greya, as far as I'm aware, Sutherlandii, Rattlecophleri and Flanaganii, uh, and they vary mainly in their foliage. They, they all get these heads of brilliant sealing wax red flowers, and, in fact, in South Africa they call them so uh, they call them bottle brush, but they're not related to our bottle brush. Uh, but they do get these heads of red flowers. But they've got more petals involved than our bottle brushes, but they still get the lovely sort of long stamens that stick out. They get big, round, platy leaves on them that look rather like what we would have once called a geranium, the, the zonal pelagoniums. Um, uh, it's a twiggy shrub. Uh, they can get quite large. I remember seeing them in the Drakensbergs, as one does, uh, in South Africa many years ago, and they'd become these gnarly small trees, in fact. Uh, they're obviously quite ancient, and they had these bright green leaves, these brilliant red flowers, and all the trunks were black from the, from the fires that sweep through the grasslands up there. So you've got these sort of black trunks, green leaves, and red flowers, which is really quite exciting and of course you'd have the background of the Drakensberg Mountains in, in, in the background so uh, it was a very picturesque thing to see these uh, grey ears growing there they're very drought tolerant uh, they're heat tolerant uh, they're not completely cold tolerant. They will frost a bit when they're young particularly, but if you can get them beyond a certain size if you're in a frosty area, then you should be fine with them. Uh, and, but they're not a tidy plant. No, they're a gnarly sort of thing that grows in all sorts of different directions. They're not the sort of thing that people put in if they're looking for something bushy. Yeah. You know how people come and they want a bushy plant. Everyone oh. wants bushy dense shrubs. Yeah, yes. and I, I think I made that yeah. classic mistake with this plant. I planted it at home a few years ago. Yeah. And I gave up on it. I yeah. said, oh, it's too ugly. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I've been chastised by Stephen yeah, saying right. I wasn't it's patient it's enough. It's a yeah. Dr. Zeus plant. Yeah, 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 it is. It's, it's got character. Yeah. And I think people who want bushy plants are trying to hide themselves from something. <laughs> um, so, so I like plants that have an open formed structure. And grey is one of those things that will grow into seriously interesting old age. It's like having a young olive tree, which is a nothing plant, or an ancient olive tree, which is, a, which is something really special. Uh, so you have to hang on to grey long enough. I mean, it flowers from a young plant. This plant in, in what I would have called an 18-inch pot, and still do, um, was struck from a cutting less than 18 months ago, and it's got a flower head on the top of it. So you don't have to wait for flowers, and the foliage is quite handsome. It's just that it needs time to grow into itself and, and become a and plant it, of character. And it needs a backdrop, I think. I think yeah. it needs... Because oh, you're going to look through it, which is yeah. a valuable... Uh, attribute for yeah, a plant to have. Oh, you just need to garden near the Drakensberg Mountains. Yes, that's right. <laughs> or, or put a picture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Have a, have a, have a nice sort of uh, <laughs> wall-painting fresco. fresco on the wall or something. So, um, but yes, it is a look-through plant, and that, and I think look-through plants are really important because 
if you don't have look-through plants, the only thing you can do with the border then is have the tall things at the back coming down through the next layer to the next layer to the next layer so that you can look above each plant at the next one. So it ends up looking like greengrocers staging. It's not... You know, you don't have this sense of taller things to the front and, mm. and what have you that you can see through. So I really like plants that you can look through. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's not going to hide the paling fence necessarily, um, but it is a very interesting... And because we are getting climate issues now, it's one of those plants that will cope quite well with the extremes of climate that we're getting because it can go down quite low in temperature, but it can also go up to very high temperatures. Um, it doesn't need a lot of irrigation once its roots get down, so it's very drought tolerant. Um, and it's certainly not a plant that's ever going to have any weed potential, so it's a safe plant to grow. Um, and it's, I think, an interesting thing. So grey ear Sutherlandii, as I said, there's three species. Uh, I've grown rattle cofflerae over the years as well, uh, which gets a slightly furry leaf. This one has a sort of a, a fairly shiny-looking leaf. Uh, in a bright green, and I've not seen Flanagan eye in the flesh, so I've only seen pictures of it, so I don't know how it varies from the other two species. But they're all bright red, and if you could get all three, you could hold the national collection. <laughs> Very easy way to do it. All right, yeah. now we're going to um, try Daylene again. Are you there, Daylene? Yes, I'm Hi, I am. Sorry about that. That's all right. I'm on a country call, yeah. so I, I rang through again. No worries. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm standing at my lime tree, um, and it, it's I forgot... To, you know, to water it with those hot days. Everything else got watered, all my other pot plants, but the big one, I've got it in a, a pot and it went, God, I, sh- I don't like this, and, it, and it, all the leaves were shriveled, but there's got green leaves and it's got mountains and mountains of little limes that want to sort of come on. Do I cut them off? Do I, I don't know what to do with this poor lime tree now. I suspect you'll, all those leaves that are wilted yeah. will fall off. They're not going to come they're, back. They've all, they've all fallen off. I've got yeah, rid of all Yeah, they're not going to come back. But the new... No. Like, so, yeah, you're into triage here. So yep. give it a good water. Keep it watered. Make sure... Keep it watered, don't, yes. Don't let it dry out again. No. You've got the... the, the new, there'll be new new flush of growth that'll come through. Effectively, you've just put it through a shock. Um, oh, okay. They're pretty robust. Uh, if, yes. you, if you treat it well, it will come back. Okay. On the question of all the little fruit... Um, Look, I think given that it's been through a bit of a shock, mm. I'd be inclined to take some off to try and get it to grow into leaf growth again. Oh, okay. Yes, uh, that's leave what some I was thinking on. of. Yes. Uh, because, yeah, you've really got to get it through this little bit of shock. So it needs a bit of TLC for a little while. Um, potentially put it into a larger pot or into oh, the ground I can't. if you can. Yeah, I can't. Oh, I don't know whether I can. It's Look, that won't be... A, that, I'm only saying that because yeah. when you put it into a larger pot, you get a bit more of a buffer for when yeah. it's really hot weather because okay. you've got a larger root ball or a larger yeah. root mass or for it to, to buffer against the heat. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think if, if we're going to get another hot spell, I would be watching that one closely. Okay. So just cut back where... Because there's oodles and oodles of little um, limes trying to grow, so cut them right back. Um, yeah, I'd take them so, off. There'd be little um, clusters, like where the flower yeah, heads were. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd probably pull half of them off. You can okay. just do it with a pair of snippets or do it yeah. with your hand. And yeah. some liquid seaweed wouldn't go astray. Okay, I was wondering about that. Yeah. You can never do any harm with that. <laughs> no, you, know, you can't have too much either. Yeah, it's one of those thing. things you can just use and it, uh, and it will help uh, add um, um, 
it's sort of a tonic. It's not a food. People mm. need to realise that the seaweed is not really a food. It has very low nutrient levels, yeah. but it, it helps sort of stimulate um, uh, all the soil-borne microbes yeah. and other sundry things, and it just gives things a tonic. It stimulates root growth too. Mm. Yeah. So okay. they actually use it as a cutting stimulant. Mm. And thickens the cell wall, so mm. you know the plant's better able to deal with pests and diseases. Yes. But yeah. No. Definitely give it give it a liquid seaweed feed daily. All right, and also we had a storm here last night, and every <laughs> you walk out the next day and everything's grown. It's just <laughs> uh, my, all my um, wisterias and and um, the butterfly trees it all fell over because of the the force of the the rain. Did you, did you record how much rain? Can you enter our competition? <laughs> no, I didn't know. Lots. But there was, it was at least 10 minutes or more in a, in a couple of... Well, you're winning so far. Yeah. Oh, are we? <laughs> i tell you what. And also, um, our, my garden must be good because I've got a whole pile of paddies that are going to be, tad, you know, frogs, and I've also got the the big frog, the bonking frog, the oh, one that goes bonk, oh, bonk. So I've got a couple of those as well. So I know I've got a Sounds great healthy. Yeah. healthy, but it is a bit wild. Well, that's all right. That sounds good. I don't know whether I'm game to say this, but a garden should reflect the personality of the owner. <laughs> I like that. I think I know. They keep on saying I'm the wild one. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. You've got a garden that reflects your personality. So that, okay. that's perfectly fine. Thank you very much. Good on you, Darlene. Thanks for calling okay. back. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, and we're going to uh, Diane and Malvern East. Good morning, Diane. Good morning, um, I have a kangaroo paw, and it's been in the ground for at least, I would say, 10 years or more. Mm-hmm. And it's produced wonderful, tall flowers, really nearly five foot tall and deep red. Um, last autumn, the middle sort of died, and young uh, plants sprouted out from the side. Uh, so I have this hole in the middle of mm-hmm. the actual uh, bulbs of the kangaroo paw, but the, what's come up this year are mainly green. They're not, they've got the tinge of red, but there's no re- other red in them, and I can't understand why. Mm, that's bizarre. We're all, we're all sitting here, we're all, we're all sort of <laughs> perplexed. Yeah, we're looking perplexed. It was going well until you said that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, normally kangaroo paws with age, I mean, that's an old kangaroo paw at 10 years old. I was going to say congratulations. Yeah, yeah, well, I was going to congratulate you as well. So by, by 10 years, you would expect it to end up with a bald centre. It's a bit like men at a certain age. You end up with a bald top. Yeah, kangaroo so paw pattern exactly bald. That's what we had. Yeah, but so now we've got all these ones that's gone around the bald centre and the flowers that have come up. They've got a, a slight tinge of red at mm. the bottom, but most of the flowers are green. Yeah, well, I can't explain why it would do that. Um, it doesn't well, make a lot of sense. All I can think is, I mean, the, a lot of the kangaroo, well, most of the kangaroo paws that are in horticulture are cultivars. Yeah, so they're, they're all hybrids and hybrids and, mm. uh, and maybe it's reverting. Reverted somehow. Yeah, like which can happen. Years. Look, it yeah. can, it, some plants aren't completely stable and they can revert to other forms by sporting and all sorts of other things. So it's the most likely scenario, although it's not something I've heard of before. No. So it's something new to me. Um, if it has gone green and not red or only bits of red, uh, it's unlikely to go back the other way. 
Right, so I'll dig it up then and get a red one, I think. Oh, look, if you like the red kangaroo paws, I mean, you had good value out of the kangaroo paw that probably cost you $12.50 for 10 years' worth. Um, it probably is now... To, I would have said it was time to dig it up at some stage anyway and perhaps divide it and replant it if you wanted to refurbish the one you've got. But if it's lost its colour, then I think I'd move on and buy a new one. Right, all right. Is there still red flowers on the outer edge, like not in the centre? Um, whether they meet the stem. Where the flower meets the yeah, stem. so it's only red oh, in part of the flower. Yeah, yeah, so the whole, yeah okay. Yeah, so yeah. it would seem that the flowers have lost their potential yeah. for being bright right. red. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's time to create a gap and start yeah. a new one. Mm. All right, thank you so much. Mm. Mm. And, yeah, obviously go for one of the flavidus varieties again, which that one sounds like because yeah. it likes oh, your garden. Yeah, yeah. 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 all yeah. right. And hopefully for perhaps... 18 or 20 dollars, you'll get another 10 years worth of, uh, of value. Is that, is that inflation? Yeah, well, I'm adding for inflation. I think most six inch pots now are getting up to between the 14 and 18 dollars a six inch pot, depending on what it is. So yeah. I still think that's damn good value for most plants. So. 10 years, yeah. no problem. Yeah. But yeah. you wouldn't put a new plant in that a same area, though, would you? Oh, yeah. 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 I just yeah. dig the ground over a bit, get a bit of compost into it. Uh, I don't think there's any particular diseases that you're likely to carry over. And if the kangaroo paw was healthy, other than the fact it it's getting old, yes. uh, then it's probably not going to cause any problems planting a new one. Oh, right. All right. Thank you so much. That's a pleasure. Good on you, Diane. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we'll go to Anna in Coburg. Good morning, Anna. Oh, good morning. Thank you for your great program. Oh, you're welcome. I have a problem with a plum tree. My mother planted, had it planted maybe six or seven years ago. And, it's, uh, and I think over the last three years, we've had three plums. <laughs> Not exactly a good crop. <laughs> one per year. <laughs> one per year. Well, yeah. there is one little plum sitting right in the middle of the tree now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of months ago, I've noticed these tiny little plums all over the place, and mm-hmm. I thought, oh, goody, you know, this is lovely. Now they've all gone. I think they've eaten. They've been eaten by birds, or they've fallen off. I don't know what ha- what has happened, but also it's suckers, and I keep cutting the suckers down. I don't know what else to do with it. I think it has too many branches. It looks too bushy. Yeah, well, um, I don't think that's stopping it from fruiting, though. No, I um, see, I see. Uh, I think it's more likely that they're not being properly pollinated because most plums require oh. a cross-pollinating variety oh. if they're going to produce plums. So unless you've got a neighbour with the appropriate plum variety nearby, I don't think this tree is ever going to get decent crops of fruit. Oh. And if that's why you've got it in the garden, uh, you either have to find out which plum it is and find the right cross-pollinator or you do the ruthless thing and just take it out. I mean, if it's not performing, I mean, I know mum put it in and all that sort of stuff, Mm. but if the tree is not, in fact, doing the job that it was planted for, and in the case of a plum tree, it Mm. is to get plums, um, then it's become something of a pointless tree. I mean, I'd rather have just an ordinary ornamental tree in the garden that I'm not expecting fruit from than a fruit tree that I don't get fruit from. (laughs) Well, Uh, you could pretend (laughs) it's an ornamental. Yeah, well, you could. could, But also the trouble with the suckering, uh, a lot of... A lot of plums are grafted onto rootstocks yeah. that will sucker, and they're a damn nuisance. I've got one in the garden at home that keeps throwing up suckers, and I've got to keep um, just poisons. Oh. Yeah. And you've just got to keep on top of them. There's nothing much else you can do. Try and get them whilst they're still young and soft, and you can rub them off. If, once they get woody, they're harder to get. Oh, they are, they they are them, getting, they keep coming. They yeah. are getting woody. Yeah. So when you say cross-pollinating, do you think I should maybe buy another plum tree? Well, the trouble is, though, you need to know which one you've got. Yes, because, exactly. Yeah. Because the, the issue is with plums, there's certain varieties that will cross-pollinate other varieties. Oh, 
varieties, oh. but other varieties that won't cross-pollinate other varieties. So you've sort of, if I were planting plums in my garden, I'd go out and buy two plums that are known cross-pollinators at the same time to I make see. sure I had the right trees. I see. If you right. don't have the name of the existing plum, yes, yes. Um, you're going to be taking potluck and you could end up with two plums that don't yeah, fruit. That don't <laughs> match. Yeah, yeah and that, that, would make, that would just be rubbing salt in the wound. Oh, wouldn't thought. it indeed. Yeah, yeah, so I don't oh. know that I would go there. So unless you know what plum you've got, you've yeah. either got to, one, live with it as just a, an ornamental tree that gives you some shade, mm. or secondly, take the tree out. Yeah. Uh, and if you do want plums, go out and buy two trees that you know from the nurserymen are the yes. cross-pollinating varieties. Yes, I will do that. And I also, I had them, I, I uh, pruned it myself, and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> So um, I just cut it down to after it flowered and you yeah. know, and so on. It's somewhere in February and beginning of March. So yeah. now it's a, the branches are all very prolific. They're all over the place, but not one bloody plum around, <laughs> except for that one, one in the middle. Well, yeah, and and probably, I'm watching it carefully. Yeah, it'll probably disappear before you get to pick it as well. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's no point in having one plum anyway, I don't reckon. No. So we're going to celebrate one plum, yeah, okay. our annual plum. But yeah. you did mention that you pruned it after flowering. Yes. Well, that's probably part of your part was of the this problem. Year? Was that this year? You no, 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 no. I, I, I pruned it. Um, I actually listened to uh, to your program's advice <laughs> <laughs> to prune it once it flowered and once it once had fruit and so yeah, on, yeah. like February and so yeah. on. Yeah. 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 So summer pruning, which yeah. seems to be a, right. a thing within fruit tree growers now, whereas yeah. once it was always winter pruning. Ah, really, um, winter pruning. But oh. um, yeah. If you left it till February, you would have known whether you were having a crop yeah. of plums or not. In fact, you should have had a full crop of yeah. plums. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that wasn't an issue. Um, okay. You may or may not have pruned it rather on the hard side by the sound of the growth that it's sent mm. up since. Because, yeah. of course, when you prune something back, if you prune it quite hard, um, that invigorates they respond. it. Yeah, if they're happy in the ground, they'll yeah. respond. Mm. Yeah. And this tree is obviously happy other than the fact it's not getting any fruit. Cause yes, it's it, looks, it looks very ha- happy. Yeah. Quite yeah, healthy, <laughs> but no fruit. Yeah. Well, okay. you could use my mother's technique. She always used to lay an axe against anything that wasn't performing <laughs> terribly well. <laughs> what a good idea. Yeah, and she reckoned it worked. <laughs> oh, yes, I may actually do that. Thank yeah. you very much for your program. Good on you, Anna. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I finally bit the bullet and took out our apricot tree, which um, I'm convinced was an ornamental in the end. It just yeah. didn't do anything for yeah. years. and you, We probably had it in, Did I don't know, six years. Yeah, I planted yeah. it. And nurtured it and loved it and did all the right things that you're supposed to do and nary a fruit. Yeah, well, there you go. At the end of the day, you do have to be ruthless about these things. I've got a peach tree in the garden at home that looks like it might get a few peaches this year, but I'm getting sick of it because it doesn't fruit very well. And it's got the squiffiest, miserablest little flowers. Well, you just got to put an axe next to it. Yeah, well, I will. Uh, actually, I think I won't put the axe next to it. I think I'll put the axe through it. <laughs> uh, it's an Anzac peach, and it's never, ever done really well for mm. me. And, I mean, I don't get round to dealing with curly leaf very often either, so that probably that doesn't help. Affect it. No, it shouldn't affect its fruit. fruit. Fruiting. No, but it's, it's never been a particularly prolific peach, mm. and it was a grafted one I bought from a, a nursery, and, and it's supposedly the Anzac variety, um, and it's, yeah, it's pointless. So, you know, and I've left it there long enough to give it plenty of, of time, uh, 
Uh, and if, in fact, its blossom had been really pretty, I might have actually sort of succumbed and said, all right, look, it's pretty, I'll leave it. But its blossom is this squeeny little blossom that's a dark pink with hardly any petal. It's sort of this really deformed-looking thing. Uh, I think it's a dreadful peach. So, I think no, it, I gone. think it's picking up on the fact that you don't like <laughs> yeah, it. And it's just like, that I'm not putting anything out for this guy that doesn't appreciate me. I would have thought it was the opposite well, way around. Yeah. I would have thought it was more the fact that uh, uh, it did that, so I didn't like it. Right. That's the way I would look at it. You know, being the horticulturalist I am, no, I can't take blame for give anything. It, give it some loving, Stephen. <laughs> oh, God. I've Talk given, to it nicely. I've given it poo. I mean, <laughs> what more could it want? <laughs> uh, All right, dear. let's get to a couple more. All right, more I've got a couple plants. of other plants. Yep. All right. Um, Oh, I might have a diatribe now. Uh, I bought along a dwarf version of Potosporum tibera. Um, and you'll find it around the nursery traps. And it's a good little shrub, actually. It makes a nice little sort of dense, bushy shrub. Probably grows to about half a metre tall by about a metre wide. Good uh, urban garden plant. Good plant. It's half got rich, glossy foliage. Yep. Nice little flowers. Nice perfume. Will grow in semi-shade through to full sun. Uh, seems to be fairly drought tolerant when it gets its roots down. And it's being sold round the traps as Potosporum tibera Miss Muffet. And it has a big Stephen label. Stephen doesn't like that. No, no I don't. Tell from the pores? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. There was that, there that, was that, that I hate this thing going. Uh, it is not Miss Muffet. It's not, it's not registered as Miss Muffet. It's a trade name. And it's not actually the plant's name. So I get that. I get really annoyed by that. If I went to a car dealership and I said, oh, what's that? I would like that car over there. And they'd say, well, we're not sure whether it's a Volkswagen or a Volvo, but it's got four wheels and a steering wheel. So it's a car. And you should buy it. Well, of course I wouldn't buy it. Who would buy a car if they don't even know what they're buying? Why people buy plants with these silly trade names on them? Uh, if I want to Google Miss Muffet, I might find a, pl- a reference to it from Australian. You'll probably get more about curds and whey. I yeah, think. well, yes, I, I probably will. Um, uh, but it's not its registered name. It was registered wherever it was bred, and I think it might... or found, I would think it wasn't actually bred, I think it's a dwarf form that would have been found in cultivation. Um, I think it might have been found in England, uh, and it was called Potosporum tibera Wheeler's Dwarf. Now, Wheeler's Dwarf might or might not have the same sales value as Miss Mufford, um, but it's its proper cultivar name. That's what it was registered as, that's what it is. Uh, so to sell the plant, and it's out round the trade in lots of nurseries I've seen it, with this great big label with Miss Mufford sitting on a tuffet with a great big hairy black spider right next to her. Uh, the label's two-thirds the size of the plant, uh, so sometimes you have to move the label aside to see the plant underneath it. Um, it just drives me insane. I mean... Some people will fall for that and they'll buy the plant. That's fine. But it doesn't even have its proper cultivar name on the label. So if you don't have the proper cultivar name, you don't don't know know what what the plant Mm. is. Uh, I think the nursery trade is treating the general population as dupes uh, that will fall for anything. Um, And if I don't find a proper botanical name on a label of a plant now, I won't buy it. Uh, there's a few bamboos being grown around at the moment under fancy names with no botanical name on the label. Drives me nuts. You can't even work out whether it's a clumping or a running bamboo which other than what it says, which is very important. Uh, I have to say the ones I'm thinking of are clumping bamboos, but they've been given these fancy names that mean nothing, uh, and they haven't got the proper botanicals on the label. Um, it, I'm waiting for the day where somebody takes a nurseryman to the Trade Practices Commission for incorrect labelling. Because I think there is a case to answer. For, and I don't look, if they were selling Miss Muffet with the big label, with the silly picture of a girl with the spider on it, and on the back of the label in small print it had Potosporum tibera, Wheeler's Dwarf, 
on there, I would be perfectly happy to accept that. Um, and good luck to them to sell the plant. But if they're not putting the proper botanic name on something, uh, I get nightmares in the nursery. I get people coming in and they say, oh, I bought this Miss Muffet thing. I'm just using it as an example because it's the one I can think of at the moment. Um, and if I don't have a botanical name, and I've never grown the plant or seen it. I have no idea how to help that person. So you don't care that it's called Miss Muffet, just that it didn't have the botanical name? I, I object to the Miss Muffet a little bit because there is a perfectly legitimate varietal name out there for the plant. So, but I, it's a marketing problem, well, marketing thing. Well, it is a marketing thing, but does, how many more plants are they going to sell as Miss Muffet as Wheeler's Dwarf? If somebody comes into the nursery, sees this nice little round bushy thing with glossy bright green leaves, lovely perfume flowers, and they see a label on it that says... Catosporum tibera wheeler's dwarf, they're pretty well as likely to buy it as they would if it was Miss Muffet. And in fact, I have had people come in and say, oh, what an awful name. But they remember it. And I think that's exactly. the marketing. That yeah, is, yeah that well, that is the, you're right, Tim. That is the marketing I think, thing. I think, yeah, I think there's two issues here. Yeah. The marketing thing is one, mm. and you might rail against that. Fair enough. Yeah. But if they're not going to put the botanical name, well, the correct cultivar yeah. name on it, that's the sin, I think. Yeah, oh, it is. No, I think we can probably tolerate Miss Muffet. You yeah. know, we might well, not like it. I take those labels off. If I buy it in from one of the wholesale suppliers, they take, all those, la- take all those Miss Muffet labels off and I write out handwritten labels with Potosporum, Tibera, Wheeler's Dwarf on it and then put them out into the nursery. Uh, and the issue there is, of course, that if I'm growing it under its proper cultivar name and other people are growing it under Miss Muffet, people could quite easily buy both thinking they're getting something different. Yeah. Uh, and they're not. They're getting the same plant. I'm selling it under the right name. Everybody else is selling it under a trade name. Um, and I would do the same with the bamboos. Uh, I would buy them in and relabel them with their proper botanical name. Um, but it does then create this issue in the trade where some of us are doing it by the letter. Others are doing it sort of in a roundabout way and are selling it uh, under a trade name to, to help its promotion. But then it creates confusion in the industry full, full on. And, of course, a lot of these trade names are being registered too so that if I buy some of those things and propagate them, if they've got a trade name on them, I'm not actually meant to use the trade name. Yeah, not as a trade name. No, no. I, can't, I can't use that name unless I've bought that plant from the recognised grower that has that trade name registered to them. Uh, and so then it puts a plant in a really awkward position. I mean, I can understand PBRs. You could, call it, you could call it Stephen's Glory or something. Yeah, I could. As a trade name. Yeah, I, I could call it anything mm. I wanted to. Mr uh, Muffet. Mr Muffet, yes. <laughs> or Hairy Spider <laughs> might be a nice one. Wheeler's Dwarf Hairy Spider. Yeah, yeah. So, so it is something that really annoys me, and it's a great little plant. So if you see one out there that's Potosporum Miss Muffet, I guess it's a good plant. It's worth having in the garden, uh, but you but should know. But call it Wheeler's Dwarf. But call it Wheeler's Dwarf. I mean, it may not be as romantic or fun a name, but it's its proper cultivar I name. I don't understand. Why is it called Miss Muffet anyway? Because they've just yeah. put a trade name on it. But and because it grows like a Muffet. Toastals? No, yeah. a Muffet is a sort of a cushion. Oh, I see. Mm. Little Miss Muffet okay, sat so on her tuffet. It's a tuffet. That does describe... Yeah, it's a tuffety plant, so hence the Miss Muffet. I can see where it came from. I think that was quite clever in one sense. So, yeah, so Miss Muffet sitting on her tuffet, the plant looks like a tuffet. That makes any sense. Uh, and so, yeah, so I can see where they were going. And, and look, I'm all for a bit of fun in plant naming, as long as it, it, it's appropriate. Uh, you know, I've had friends say to me, you know, well, what would you call this or what would you call that? And we try and come up with a good plant name. And, in fact, I had somebody who had a Nandina, which I don't think is a particularly good plant, but it had a slightly goldish leaf. But it wasn't gold enough to be a proper golden Nandina. So he sent me a plant and he said, plant it out in your garden. If you think it's any good, let me know and see if you can think of a name. Almost gold. 
No, no, I thought of a better one than that. If it had turned out to be the better plant than it, it actually did. Because um, I went in and did some research and I found that quite a number of Nandinas have got sort of watery names. There's Moon Bay, uh, there's something spray. There's, there's about four of them that have got sort of watery names. So I said the obvious choice for the name for this particular uh, Nandina, if you're going to sell it, is Gold Coast. Well, it's gold uh, and, and it's a watery theme uh, and it would have fitted in with all the other Nandinas, but it wasn't good enough, I don't think, to cultivate and, and put out there in the trade because it was just sort of a green that was, wasn't quite green. Uh, there, is, there is some good imagination out there. Yeah, the and there's some really bad. And there's some bad. You know, yeah. I mean, you take Rhododendrons, for instance, there's an old cultivar called Pink Pearl. Great name. It explains what the plant does. It has pink flowers on it, and it's an easy name to remember. Mm. And it probably sold more plants than any other pink rhododendron. But it's a bloody awful plant. It has yellowish foliage, grows as a scruffy plant, and the pink has a slight blue tinge to it, so it's sort of got this sort of mauvey look from a distance against the yellow foliage, which is not particularly pleasant. So selling on the name alone. Uh, really. On the name alone. Pink pearl is a dreadful rhododendron. Truly awful. There is a rhododendron out there that has really good foliage, big, good pink heads on it. It's even perfumed. It's only got two problems. One is it doesn't strike from cuttings well, so it's got to be grafted. And its name, which is Faggotus favourite. <laughs> so you've got rhododendron Faggotus favourite, which is a far superior rhododendron to pink pearl, but you're never going to sell it, and nor would you want to grow it because it's got to be propagated by grafting, so therefore it would be more expensive to produce. But it is a far better garden rhododendron than pink pearl, but it's well, never it going to get there it because it's a marketing campaign. So yeah, well, how do you market Faggotus favourite? You've got to change it. Yeah. Well, you can't. It's, it's cultivar name. So, you know, you do have to think through names. Mm. Absolutely. Very important. And we've got a whole bowl full of callers. We've got a lot of callers. Enough of my nonsense. Enough of Stephen. Let's get to Sophie and Frankson. Good morning, Sophie. Good morning. Good morning, all. Good morning, we help you, Sophie? Oh, well, I hope so, Stephen. I'm sitting here listening to all <laughs> your rant, and I'm agreeing with you. Oh, good, good. You're agreeing with me. That's at least a yes. start. Yes, well, I get very cross with that. Because even if they give the, the correct name, it's always in tiny print on the back or something, which you have to search for. Anyway, that was not the reason for my call, Stephen. I'm really supporting you in something else. I missed you yesterday trying to get you because you were promoting Michaela Bella as a good plant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the most wonderful plant, but you don't see it no. anywhere, really. For a little uh, while it showed up in the nursery industry. Um, uh, it was out and about a bit. Yes. Um, but it doesn't seem to be being grown anymore, and I can't quite understand why, because you can propagate it easily. It's easily, easily propagated. Although I don't and like I to have tell made, the I must have got it from you, because <laughs> otherwise it would have been, I thought it was either you or the Botanic Gardens, one of their sales, but... It was probably from you, and mm. I had one. I now have a hedge. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so it's easy to propagate, unfortunately. Um, yes, I'm sorry about that, yes. Stephen, but it is so easy to propagate, yeah. and I have it in the shade, I have it in the sun, yep. I have it partially. It's just, it's the most amazing plant, and I sing its praises to all my friends and actually give them some of them because it Sophie, really is stop a that. plant. I wonder why <laughs> it hasn't. Really I, I don't well, know why it hasn't caught on. I think it's probably one of those things where, I mean, the plant doesn't even have a particularly difficult name. Micaiah Bella's not no. that hard to say, so it's not sort of like Metasequoia glyptostroboides or Ampelopsis brevipedacularis. So it's got a reasonably easy name. It's, it's easy to propagate. It's quick growing. It flowers young. I can flower it in a six-inch pot, so it should be one of those things <sighs> showing up on Bunnings stands in, in all their stores. But it hasn't. 
And I think the basic reason why it hasn't is that people just don't know about it. Nobody's actually promoted it as a good garden plant because it can grow in dry shade under big trees. I mean, for goodness sake, exactly. how useful is that? Exactly, uh, or in full sun. Yep. I mean, it's, it's really a most amazing and such a beautiful thing. It's a lovely flower and yes. good dark green glossy foliage. It's, it's absolutely doing its thing at the yep. moment, isn't it? Yep. So, so, yeah, Michaela Bella is a great plant, Sophie, and uh, uh, it would fit the bill for a lot of gardeners looking for something tough and easy. Does it have a common name? Not as Should far I, as I know. I don't really want to go into naming territory. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, no. Difficult name to remember either, is it? I mean, it is beautiful, and all yeah. you have to do is remember Michaela. It's Michaela's no harder to say than Daphne Odora, Michaela Bella, and they can get Daphne so, Odora. Exactly, exactly. So, well, I, look, I'm glad I caught you, because I think it's just, it would be lovely for more people to grow it. I think and it's and I have plant. stock. It's <laughs> really hard to propagate. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard to propagate, yeah. All right, thank you, Sophie. I think it's a great plant. It's really hard to propagate. Bye. Yeah, bye. Thanks, Sophie. <laughs> Thanks for the recommendation. All right, let's go to Ruth in Bentley East. Hello, Ruth. Oh, good morning, everyone. Morning, yes, Ruth. I was listening about that Micaiah Bella yesterday, too, but could you spell the Micaiah part? M-A-C-K-A-Y-A. Oh, okay, right. Well, that wasn't my original question, but that's good. <laughs> yeah, so you've got the spelling um, now, so you can you can do Mr. Google on it and find out yeah. more about it. <laughs> and then try and find a spot in the garden. Oh, well, I always say to people when I, I regularly get husband and wife teams in the nursery and the husband's often not that engaged with what's going on. The recalcitrant husband. Yeah, the recalcitrant husband. And, and, and the wife picks up something and he says, and where are you going to put that? And I say, in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and that always gets yeah, a laugh, funnily enough. Um, but, yeah, yeah so if you can find space for Michaela Bella in your garden, you might even have something in your garden that needs to go. To make oh, space. Well, be, I always make mistakes, yeah. so there'll be something. Oh, undoubtedly. We all have something yeah. we shouldn't have planted, so, you know, you need to be a bit ruthless occasionally. All um, right, so your question was, though? Well, I have... Well, they were two beautiful zygiums, uh, lily-pilly variety, mm-hmm. um, orange twist, and the last two seasons now, there's something eating the foliage. I've ruled out possums. Maybe, maybe snails because I have had them attack young magnolias. It doesn't get a blister, does it? It's not like a blistery thing. No, no, no. So it's not getting that silly. It's supposed to be resistant to that. Oh, Mm. it's gone out of my head, but what you're talking about. Yeah, the psyllids, yeah. Yeah. No, I have seen the other day two little insects. They're like almost like a literally a pea green colour. And about the size of a pea and the larger one moves very quickly but I can't see anything else and I don't want to just randomly spray No, well, I wouldn't randomly spray anything. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I don't, so the foliage is disappearing altogether? No, the, around the, all the new growth gets eaten mm-hmm. and around the, leaf the edges so the, the, leaf the is leaf margins, left. yes. Yeah. They get so it's some sort of chewing insect, uh, mm. I would suggest. Uh, yeah. I can't see a caterpillar or... It's, it's interesting it's that you can't see anything if, if they're all getting eaten. Oh, no. Have Maybe you been I'm out so at blind. night? No, I'm very blind. <laughs> I can't. Well, if, if you've got a strong torch and you walk out yeah. at night and don't trip over something in the garden when you do, um, it sounds to me like it's probably some sort of insect pest that goes underground during the day or in amongst the leaf litter or mulch on the ground and then comes up at mm. night and does the damage. Which is classic 
snail behaviour. It is sort of snail behavior. and slug behaviour, but I wouldn't have thought they'd eat yeah. the leaves in that pattern. Mm. So my gut feeling is it's some sort of weevil, beetle, um, uh. something along that sort of line. Um, having said all of that, the only way you're going to get rid of those sort of pests is to, is to blast it with something fairly toxic. I, I Personally, I would either pull them out or live with the issue and hope that in time they, be, they sort of grow through it. How old are they, Ruth? Um, maybe four years now. And are they in good health otherwise, or is it just oh, a new yes. growth? Yes, and it's yes. not something that you can just live with and, and you know, apply oh. again the liquid seaweed and try and, you know, really yeah. improve their health? I've got a lot of patience. I'll give anything a go. But when I was specifically bought them because of this beautiful orange gold foliage mm. that it gets, yes, mm. no, that's why as soon as I saw it coming, I thought, oh, great, you know, and then it disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'd probably trim the plants back to the old growth at this time of the year because you'll get another flush mm. and, and maybe the bug is sort of spring seasonal, so you might mm. get a second flush that'll be all right later. It's certainly worth trying that. Mm. Yep. So try that. But long term, you've got to actually work out whether it's worth doing. Uh, And I certainly don't think growing anything that I need to spray on a regular basis Mm. is worth doing. Um, So I either live with the problem or I pull out the plant in the end. Um, I'm quite ruthless about those things because I can't see the point and I don't want to use chemicals any any more than I have to. I mean, I very rarely use anything chemical, uh, which includes fungicides because they have impacts that we don't know about too. And yet we see fungicides as being fairly benign. You think about the soil mycorrhizae oh, or the yeah. fungi that's in the soil. We, it, that's it vitally does get important. affected. Yeah. 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 yeah, and so yeah. I don't use fungicides. I don't use insecticides. I don't use weedicides particularly. Uh, I have been known to spot spray with a little bit of Roundup if I've got oxalis problems, but that's, that's about as chemically as I get, uh, which I think is not a bad effort. Um, so everything else is dealt with by hand, and if the plant won't adjust to my growing conditions, I stop growing it. And Ruth... Sorry, I was just going to say, do you think a chilli or garlic spray, would that have any effect? Look, you can try, but it it might just... Find out what it is. Yeah, Yeah, you need to know what you're dealing with. But even if you do use a chilli or garlic spray, the insect might think it's going out for Mexican anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Ruth, Ruth, our our, uh, phone operator is just waved madly at me and saying she's had the same problem with hers and it's snails. And, oh, and well. they have been coming out at night and just nipping the margins off, and um, yeah. so it, 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 that might pay. So you've got to get, it, get, out, get out there out at torch. night. Yeah, yeah, and do yeah. a bit of tap dancing on snails, perhaps. Oh, yeah. don't you worry. <laughs> yes, I've learned to not be squeamish about no, doing that. No, <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah, and Sorry, of course, when I'm in France, I eat a few just to get my own back. Oh, no, thanks. No, no. <laughs> All right, then. Well, thank you very much anyway. And I'll, I'll do the snail thing and I'll have another look. All right, <laughs> well done. Report thank back. You. Thanks, Ruth. Bye-bye. All right, and let's go to Anne in uh, Heidelberg. Hello, Anne. Oh, hi. Um, I rang last week about my fig tree that I noticed had lots of figs on before the leaves came out. And then when the leaves came out, all of them had disappeared except about three. Well, during the week, all these tiny little figs have appeared again on the tree. Mm. So is, it, is that the normal way that figs work, that they might get little figs and then they disappear and then they come back again or something? Figs are wasp-pollinated, 
and they'll often produce fruit or start to produce fruit at a time of the year when the wasps aren't around. And unless they're pollinated by the wasps, they're not going to grow into full-sized figs. So, yes, in a sense, that is one of the things that could happen. If well, they, got, they, get a, they can get what they call a braver crop, which yeah. is that winter crop, the bare branch crop, mm. which will be the little crop that sits there for the, the winter season. Yeah. And that's probably what we're No, but it was for. only a few weeks ago when it had lots of... wasn't all that long, though. And then they disappeared... They, yeah, I don't know where they went, but they could have been birds. Maybe. Yeah, it could have, or, or it could have been aborted fruit. Like yeah, yeah, could have directly. Yeah, they can. They can have a funny fruiting pattern where they can do that winter crop and then have a. They will do two or three crops in a season. Mm-hmm. So that that's not particularly oh. abnormal. Yeah, and, okay. and if they don't get pollinated, then there's a good chance they're going to drop off. Uh, one does wonder though whether something else came in and took them off, because mm. uh, there's always a chance that. I don't know, a bat, a possum, um, a rat. Um, usually if it's aborted through incomplete pollination, they'll drop off. Yeah, you'll find the them on the ground, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I didn't find any on the ground, and it would just puzzle me that if, if some kind of predator came and took the really hard green fruit, like what's the appeal in it for them? Because it's not... Who knows? I, I Cockatoos <laughs> come in and take my quinces off the tree when they're about the size of a marble. Just to be annoying. Yeah, and I think it is. Um. Like, yeah, it's just to get at us gardeners. <laughs> so, you know, you just, you've got to laugh it off and go, well, I'll get a crop some other time. Uh, don't let them get to you. <laughs> I just thought it was intriguing. Like, I was so excited when I saw these figs back again and I thought, well, maybe I will have some this summer. Oh, I think there's a pretty good chance you will if yeah. it pollinates well. Yeah, if it pollinates all right, there's a good chance you will. There'll be just enough there for the bats later. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was the bat. <laughs> well, how, how will I know if it pollinates if they just keep um, growing? Yeah, yeah. They'll form properly. Because yeah. the, the wasp that, that pollinates a fig actually goes inside the, the receptacle. The, 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 the fruit is actually... In figs, it's weird because the flowers are inside, inside the fruit. Out flower. Inside yeah. out. So it's an inside-out thing. So the wasp has to go in there. It runs around pollinating the fig, but it also lays its eggs at the same time. So you're probably eating the remnants of an old wasp egg every time you have a, <laughs> have a, a fig. So uh, there you go. I've just turned everybody yeah. off eating yeah. figs, but that's all right. Um, and they taste very delicious, yeah. though. They do taste very delicious. So uh, I wouldn't worry about the wasps at all. Um, but, yeah, look, you're very likely to get a nice summer crop of figs so uh, hopefully you'll be able to sit back relax and and enjoy those figs uh, in any way shape or form you like them in the house so is there any way that you can attract the fig to the uh, attract the wasp to the fig tree no it's not one of those. It's, it's, that wasp will find the fig tree if it knows where it is. It'll find it. Uh, okay. You can't attract the wasp with anything else because the only thing that attracts it is figs. So, well, uh, so you're in, and you're in Heidelberg, is that right? Yeah. yeah. There should be loads of figs around there which would be yeah. hosting wasps. Yeah, so. you would think so. So they probably don't have terribly far to go to get to your fig tree from somebody else's. Oh, okay. So, All right, fantastic. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Good on you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. And let's go to Nina in Seddon. Hello, Nina. Good morning. Hi, everybody. Morning, Nina. I was just ringing up uh, about the lady that was talking about her lily pilly. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I've been doing people's, this lady's garden for about eight years, and lately we've noticed the same thing uh-huh. chewing on the, on the leaves. Yeah. And I've been investigating and I've been researching, and I found this 
Paropsides calypso beetle. Little green <laughs> beetle. Goodness. Ah, has it got a trade name? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's got oh. a trade name. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's probably a green stink bug or something. Yes. <laughs> well, it looks, like a, it looks like a little ladybug, yeah. sort of, but it's green. And it actually comes from the northern um, New South Wales so area. it's one of our own so, native... So it's a natural predator, if you like, to the, yes. to the little pillars. It's native, yes, mm. to northern New South Wales, and I think through transportation, they're actually coming south. Mm. It's a bit like gall wasp that sort of moves exactly south the as the years have gone yes. on. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So because could... although they do do sprains and all that sort of stuff, it's never really thorough. So all this transportation up and down... You know, we're getting insects from everywhere. Oh, and look, once an insect gets into a into a habitat, yes. um, if it's happy in that habitat, it doesn't matter if everybody's spraying. There's going to be some little corner somewhere where they're not spraying and the insect will build up again. Um, so once it's there, it's there. It's like gall wasp. We'll never see the end of exactly. gall wasp now. It's there for good. So my point of actually looking at the plant and saying, is it worth it, is possibly not a bad thing to look at because if, if you're going to have to spray, I mean, most... Bugs and beetles are hard to kill, mm. so Very you've got hard. to use something quite potent to get the little buggers, some sort of systemic something, which always worries me. If it's something that goes through the system of a plant, it's very likely to go through our systems and everything else's systems. So I'm not mad keen on systemic um, insecticides. I know they're functional and they work, but that's about the only thing you could do to keep the plants clean, and you'd have to do it on a comparatively regular basis. I mean, if I could spray a chemical on and know that after I'd done so the problem wouldn't reoccur, then I'd be very tempted to use it because I'd only need to use it once. Mm, but yes. because we know that once you've broke, you know, you can only break a cycle and then you've got to keep breaking it all the time and you don't know what good bugs and good things that you're also knocking off in the process. So... Right. What I, have you done, Nina, with yours? Have, have you lived with it or what have... Oh, I, I have tried eco oil and stuff like that. I'm trying, mm. but I do get out there with my magnifying glass. <laughs> well, and, and just burn them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they do hide in the soil. Yeah, so I figured that would be the case. Yeah, Yeah, and I just shake all the leaves, and I because I've got a sort of a very pale, um, you know, concrete, I can see them dropping. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a yeah. pest, actually, because, you know, they are selling all the lily pillies, you know, resistant free, this and that, but you know, well, for psyllids, yes, perhaps, now. but yeah, yeah obviously this little bug is not going to be something that the lily pillies are going the to be The only way with. you're going to do it is with a systemic insecticide, That's yeah, right. which is pretty extreme. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it is sort of killing an ant with a sledgehammer yeah. sort of it, stuff. Because that basically, well, it, it's a, a systemic insecticide is one that the plant takes up through its root system and becomes apparent in its leaf or in yeah. all its tissues, and that's, yeah, that's a pretty extreme thing to do. Hmm. What if, um, well, this lady actually said to me, maybe just pull out all the trees and start again. Yeah, but not plant the same tree back again. Um, <laughs> They're different trees. Yeah, you'd have trees. to go for a different species. And look, long term, that is the most most environmentally friendly thing you can do, is get rid of a tree that's not performing and plant that's something right. that does. Uh, and I know you might have a particular passion for a particular plant. Um, uh, there's actually some plants out there that I'm hoping the bug or pest will come in and start attacking that it isn't attacking <laughs> well, that's what already. We need, don't we? You know, like the golden diosma bug would be a really <laughs> good one. Uh, 
Uh, and I think the Fatinia bug is another one that I wouldn't say no to. Uh, I'm quite pleased with Cyprus canker. I think that's, that's a good thing, that it's getting out there and knocking Cypresses to bilio. Um, uh, you know, if, if we don't deal with these plants, we're hoping nature will. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and I'm not an overly excited person when somebody says lily-pilly, I have to say, but there you go. They're that's a useful hedge plant, but there useful. are plenty of options. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there are. They're, and, growing. You know, oh, that's the other pest I want, Fatinia, uh, no, Potosporum James Sterling oh. bug. I like that plant. I'd like that pest to be out there too, as well. Uh, so yes, yeah, so decimate the industry. Though. It would. It would decimate the industry. But you know, they'd have to move on. You know, so uh, find another plant to grow. So I'm with you on that one. If 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 you could take them out uh, and plant and something, start again, and something new, something new. Um, and also, of course, it does raise the other issue that if you're using a lot of something in a garden, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Yes, so the sort exactly. of landscaping where you're planting. Uh, masses and masses of one plant. What happens if we get box blight here? Mm. Uh, it's all through France and England now, and they're losing their mm. box bushes mm. uh, like mad, and all those parterre gardens in France are starting to look like somebody's had their teeth extracted. Um, and don't they have problems with olive trees in Europe? Too? Yes, there's an olive tree problem as yes. well. And so people who plant a huge amount of any given thing in their garden, I mean, I can understand growing them as a crop uh, where you have to have lots of them to make it commercially viable. But planting a lot of one thing in a garden can cause major problems if something goes wrong. So, yes, I'm a great believer in as much biodiversity in your garden as possible. Then if something goes wrong, it's only going to go wrong with one or two plants, and then I can pull them out and start again. Mm. Well, all I want to say is I love, your, I love listening to your show. I listen to the podcast when I don't get a chance Fantastic. to listen to it. But I was just so glad that I found you guys. Oh, well, well we're <laughs> very glad you did. <laughs> Thanks for ringing Thank in. You. Good on Thank you. Thank you. Have a lovely day. You Bye. too. Bye for now. Well, see, there you go. We've got a, another slant on the dreaded lily pilly whatever. Yeah. The, uh, mm. Did you write down the name? I didn't write it. No, no, I, did, I didn't green write bug. down. Yeah, the, the green, green bug. Yeah, yeah, mm. that, that bug thing. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. So it's obviously a native insect. So in one sense, as a native insect, we probably should be protecting it. <laughs> but I mean, the, 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 yeah, the fact yeah. is that if a plant is really healthy, mm. it's, it has much less chance of being attacked by anything. Yeah. So we really need to just, you know, get onto the health of the plants. Yeah, if you can so keep things in good nick. But the problem is, too, that sometimes you're planting something that's not quite within its habitat, so it's never going to be yeah. quite as vigorous as yeah. it should be. Or, in fact, well, if you grow... the other way around, though, too. You can take it out of its habitat and it gets oh, exotic yeah. vigour. Mm. And oh, grows well, it can. So um, and also, you've got the other issues. If you're growing things in cities, you know, I mean, there's air pollution. There's all sorts of things going on. There's, there's the heat blanket over, mm. over cities and all that sort of stuff, which creates a, an artificial environment in which some things won't flourish, mm. uh, no matter how well you look after them. Um, and I guess, yes, at the end of the day, life's too short. And if something isn't doing the job I want for it in the garden, I'm sorry, through the shredder simplest way out of this problem you haven't got it there making you feel guilty any longer and looking terrible exactly now a listener did call up and, and suggested that um, Anna with her plum tree problem could um, create multiple grafts on her tree she could if that is one way around the I like that idea yeah well you yeah. could do that um, well, the, I guess the, the challenge there is okay you get multiple grafts of plums and you might get five or six and mm. then she's going to get guaranteed pollination but often what happens with the multi-graft trees is that one graft will be stronger than the mm. other. So you have to be quite careful with your pruning. Yep. Yeah, you, yeah. So firstly, there's the technicality of doing that, which is quite a fun little project to do. Yeah. Uh, and you've got very little to lose. So a little to lose. Yeah. But then when they do establish, 
um, yeah, you'll get all that cross pollination. You'll get you'll get a variety of fruit, uh, but you do have to be a bit careful with one variety taking off. Uh, or one being less vigorous and you end up pruning it out. So yeah. yeah, that, yeah. Fun that project, helps. though. Yeah, and the other issue I have, just from an aesthetic point of view, multigraph trees always look a bit odd because you've got different shaped leaves and different mm. coloured leaves and things, and there's something decidedly sort of leprous about a multigraph <laughs> tree. Um, uh, and I always look to the aesthetic side of things. Um, you know, for me, it is all about the aesthetic. So if they, if they look fine, that's good. It's like I can remember when dear old Alan Gilbert used to be with us and he used to talk about tying bricks on the ends of your branches of your yeah. fruit trees. I tried to hold that them. on the apricot. Yeah, and it didn't work. <laughs> uh, Nothing but, worked. You know, and it might have worked, but I, c- I couldn't see in my garden where I would have strings and bricks <laughs> hanging mean, all over the garden. You use stockings, used stockings to tie uh, things. Yeah, yeah. No, as long as you st- take the gusset out of those, it's not too bad. Um, but, yeah, look, for me, it is about aesthetics in a garden. I mean, if I get fruit and vegetables from my garden, that's fantastic, but I'm not going to, you know, net all my fruit trees and turn them into giant inasharples and things. I mean, the birds get most of my fruit, but I want my fruit trees to look nice in the garden. I don't want to have to protect them with some sort of thing over the top of them. Um, but, so others, but other people have a... Have a, a functional, yeah, a, a yeah. functional appreciation. And if they're growing and things net that way, stuff and hmm. a multi-graft is a great way. In yeah. A small oh, space. look, it certainly is. I have no objections to that, as long as it's not in my garden. <laughs> uh, sneak one in. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like the idea of other people doing it. I think it's a fantastic way. And if if your ethos of gardening is to produce food for your family, that's fantastic. For me, it's the fun of growing things, but they've all got to fit into the aesthetics of my garden, and I want my garden to look as good as possible the whole time. And so some of these things that work but look ordinary, I mean, I would never use old tyres to grow my potatoes Mm -hmm. in, or, you know, uh, I'm not a mad keen recycler because the wheelbarrow that you put vegetable seedlings in still looks like a wheelbarrow, Um, and the toaster you put succulents in always looks like a toaster. Or the Uh, toilet. Yeah, or the toilet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of stuff can be quirky and if it's done really well it can be interesting but it's not something that I would Just, I'm going to there's a um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this but there's an Instagram feed called Shit Gardens oh is, is it not the best it's so oh funny. I haven't get, oh, get on I don't do Instagram oh. at the moment it'd be it's worth it just to just, so to check just it called out. Shit Gardens it's just yeah. called Shit Gardens and there's photographs of toilets or whatever sculpture yeah. and just People well, out I've, there I've got a whole series of slides somewhere in a cupboard at home. And well, I you used, could post them. Uh, well, I used to do this talk uh, called What Not to Do in Your Garden, uh, and, and it would show you pictures of somebody's steps that sort of wobble up the side of a hillside or, or a seat that's leaning over on its side or you know, uh, you know, all sorts of weird things, sculptural elements in the garden made out of yeah. rubbish that still look yeah. like rubbish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All that sort of stuff. white and, yeah, and then it'll, better. Yeah, and then it, that'll be a sculptural element. <laughs> um, and so I got this whole series of slides, and I was always frightened when I did that talk that I was going to have somebody in the audience <laughs> that actually wrote their garden. Yeah. <laughs> it never happened, but um, it's one of those things. I should I should get all those slides out and actually have them digitally dealt with, and then I can actually put it back on the on the thing. And most of those people now thinking about it are probably all dead, so it won't matter anymore because well, they're old slides now. The, the shit gardens on on Instagram, as you say, it's 
absolutely hysterical. It's but it's also about his captions that mm. he puts. Yep. He puts brilliant captions with it, and it's got to the stage. I think he's actually put a book out now. Oh, is there a book? of the okay. gardens? And I'm, I'm pretty sure now you wouldn't be too bothered if your garden was included. In fact, it's probably the phenomenon is going to come where people are trying. Yeah, 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 they try. Look at my shit garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got the best one in the neighbourhood. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh dear, that actually is a bit of a worry. I, yeah. The thought of it frightens me. But I do like people's gardens, as I said before, to be a reflection of their personality. And so if people actually do that stuff and enjoy it, I don't have an issue with that. I might not like what you do, but if you do it well, the, the thing is is to do it with conviction. If you like dwarves in the garden, have all seven. Yeah. You know, don't oh, no, don't have a whole army yeah. on it. Yeah. I remember seeing a garden that had all the seven dwarves, but instead of Snow White in between, they had a statue of E.T. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and that made Candidate me laugh. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that was fantastic. I love that. And all his garden composed was all little concrete statues and grass that he had to mow. And I don't know how he did that. Uh, such skill. Yeah, because it was, it was beautifully cut grass, uh, and, but he had all these little statues everywhere, and the house was sold, and obviously not with the statuary, because it all disappeared oh. uh, when he sold and moved on, and I don't know where he went, so I can't get pictures of his current efforts. But he was up in Karlsruhe, and it was sort of one of the few houses in Karlsruhe, and you'd be driving through Karlsruhe when the highway used to go through that way, and you'd look over, and he had his little windmill, and he had his, his seven dwarves, and E.T. Car, and awesome car. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, the Mexican <laughs> with the big hat, and the, the whole works. It was fabulous. You know, it was just so over the top um, that it used to make me smile, but I wouldn't actually want it for me. Mm, and I think that the point is, you know, people making an effort rather than just, you know, you just see those bland lawns with, you know, a couple, couple of yuccas or all the yeah. iceberg roses. Just yeah. make an effort. Just get out there and start learning yeah, about your plants. exactly. And don't plant all monocotyledonous plants like seems to be helping, happening all over the western suburbs. So we've got monocot monotony everywhere. Monocotony. Yeah, it's awful. Is that a word? No, but it, you it just can made it be. Up. Yeah, it can, it can be made up. Um, we need texture, form, shape and enjoyment. And it's now quarter past nine. It is. And oh. uh, we have pretty much reached the end of our time. So I'd like to thank Stephen and Tim very much for coming in and sharing your lo- knowledge. Thanks to Liz for womaning the phones and, and waving madly at me every time she had something to add. I think we'll have to hit, get her behind the microphone. Yes, soon. I think so. Yes. You've been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop. And until next week, bye-bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.